All those who are holding tickets outside will get in as fast as they can. I'm speaking not to you, ladies and gentlemen, but I'm speaking to the crowd on the outside who seem to be standing rather reluctant to come in, and we're going to start this very soon. Welcome back to Worthy. I'm Ben. And I'm John. And on this episode, we're going to be talking about the 1973 Best Picture winner, The Sting which starred Robert Redford and Paul Newman, the dynamic duo from Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid reuniting. And we were thinking about dynamic duos and film duos and what makes them so special. So, John, before we get into you know a list of notable names and notable duos, what, you know, what do you think about the dynamic? Is, it, is that crucial to a film? Do you like it when there's two people like leading the film? Or do you like it sometimes when it's just the one main with a bunch of supporting cast around it to help that performance yeah that's a great question i think it's really dependent on the type of film that we're talking about and this being you know a con man a heist film something that you have this like partnership already embedded in the film and you can look at butch cassidy and sundance kid as the perfect example for our two leads here newman and redford where they have this like dynamic chemistry those two men are like synonymous in the old west they are partnerships so you need a two actors that can really like sync up together and sometimes you need actors that have the kind of like inverse or inflection of each other where they can ping pong in a way that's super engaging and, and exciting and and really fun to watch on screen so i'm curious right off the bat what did you think of you know our partnership here between newman and redford and are there other top duos that you personally love yourself yeah, so focusing just on Redford and Newman, you know, one of the things I feel like just growing up and, you know, being a, being a fan of film and, and then wanting to learn about film histories, you always hear the names, you know, Redford and Newman, you know, you know, they're always synonymous because of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. So I just always had this, like, thought in my head of, like, oh, they were in a bunch of movies together. And then when I watched The Sting, I was like, oh, this must be one of them. And then when I was, like, looking it all up and I realized they were only in the two movies together. But it was so iconic to film, especially Butch Cassidy. And I think like that wave of how like big that movie was like helped the sting in a way because of that duo of Redford and Newman. And they're great. They really play off each other well. Um, you know, I think one of the things that Newman is he's steady, he's calm, whereas Redford is this firecracker, you know, that comes into the scene like and and like that's the really good dynamic they have. And I think they carry that from both films and into like the rest of their career. So um I, you know, what did you think of their, you know, partnership uh, in the film and both films, I guess? Yeah, I think it's interesting because you could look at it and be like, oh, they're playing the same characters. But really, they're really different. Both of their characters in both films are extremely different. And I think when you look at the sting, it's more of like a master being a con man and like get up to the next level where Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid is much more of like a brotherly relationship. And I think that like drastically changes their dynamic and. Personally, for me, I like that dynamic more in Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, but that's nothing against The Sting. It's just a very different kind of film, and they're very different characters in The Sting. There's there's a lot that I love about their relationship here that we'll get into, but personally, I think the dynamic duo of the two of them works really well in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and I think that comes to they spend more screen time together. It really is just those two guys on screen for almost the entire film, and it's a lot more antagonists against each other you know they're really just like battling each other constantly throughout this movie uh or throughout butch casting the sundance kid while the sting it's very much you as the audience are kind of 
seeing them as a partnership, yes, there's some back and forth, some some kind of like slapping back and forth, nothing physical, but emotionally. And it doesn't go <laughs> too far. You're kind of left a little bit on the outside for this thing to kind of figure out for yourself. Are they actually working together? Is someone stabbing them in the back? Like, are they going to betray each other? So it's a different relationship that the films itself kind of builds. But let's jump into... You know, we were talking about these dynamic duos. We should talk about some other iconic film duos. You know, other film duos that come to you. Like, for me personally, I think they're so synonymous with, like, our generation and growing up, which is Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. And we just got Air, a film directed by Ben Affleck, with Matt Damon being the lead actor in the film. And, again, their chemistry is still there. It still, you know, has a lightning kind of performance between the two of them. And they're very magnetic and... They balance each other in a way where you have Ben Affleck, who's always been like the more cocky, the the more like abrasive person. When you have Matt Damon on the other side, he's usually softer. He's usually more of the good guy, and that dynamic just works so so perfectly. And it goes all the way back 1989, where they starred in Fields of Dreams as like extras together. So their history together goes so far back, and it's amazing. Also, in, in film, where you can see actors grow and they become better, and then they still continue to work together, and you can see how those two kind of performances and those two actors and their friendship and their bond changes their relationship and it changes how how well we see them on screen and then there's the factor of knowing that Matt Damon and Ben Affleck have been friends since they were kids it it adds a lot to their relationship but Ben I'm rambling here because I love (laughs) I love Matty Dames and and Benny Affleck but you tell me what what are some duos that jump out to you right away yeah I had a feeling you were going to take that one right off the top (laughs) And, you know, we have a, I wouldn't say, you know, it's a, it's a list of to do do as we come up with, you know, we probably missed a few, but one that like really stood out to me in terms of quality and relevancy, especially to the Oscars, especially of recent memory is Brendan Gleeson and Colin Farrell, when they were just both nominated for the Banshees of Inishirin, they have in Bruges and that like dynamic kind of like really just great acting, like theater acting going at each other on screen. Uh, works really well and it's a great dynamic duo people always talk about that relationship and how well they played off each other and like kind of what made banshees like as popular as it was was because of this duo reteaming and and just giving great performances so that's one that really stands out but there was another one that i really wanted to say because we grew up with it and that's will ferrell and john c Riley. iconic iconic for like us growing up and you know comedy you know film and that world and it just man like that that is a really great partnership and the movies that came off each other uh probably probably Talladega Nights is my favorite one uh of the two of them together oh that's so hard that's a hard one you made me really think I gotta go Step Brothers oh it's like my, yeah, my fiance's favorite movie basically and it's so gosh darn funny but Talladega Nights that's that's up there for me. I also love yeah. that. I mean, we're getting silly because now, like, the next one I want to bring up is, like, Joe Pesci and, and De Niro. <laughs> but iconic. Like, and then it's, like, on the... Iconic. And they balance the the drama and the comedy so well. And that's kind of why they work so well together is that they both can flip-flop between that, you know, to bust your balls and then immediately cracking a joke or, you know, what's funny? What's so funny? What do you think's funny? You know, like, there's so many, like, iconic moments that those two can like kind of bounce off each other in such an easy way. That's a great, great, great person to shout out. And even when De Niro would go on to make his own film, like a Bronx tale, who's in a Bronx tale. It's Joe Pesci. I mean, also what an amazing movie. Oh my God. So good. 
and it's just they've started so many so many films together and it was like amazing for them to come back together and be in the Irishman and I think that was like a, a pinnacle landmark for their career and kind of like slowly winding down their career together I think it was a really beautiful yeah. thing that they did yeah I, I totally agree with that um, just a really great duo um, I kind of wanted to also pose this question to you John we didn't write it down because I, I want to see if this duo comes up first in your head. But what film duo, so characters, not a- actors, like what are some of your favorite film character duos? So obviously R2-D2, C-3PO. Okay. And obviously Jay and Silent Bob. Those come up there immediately. We go. I, <laughs> yes. Okay. Absolutely. I was hoping you were going to say Jay and Silent Bob. I don't know the and, two. I don't know. Um. Oh, my God. I'm blanking on the name right now. You have, uh, oh my god, I'm too old for this shit. What is what is that franchise called? I can't think of what it's called now. I I mean, what, what's too, in the Mel franchise? Mel Gibson, I'm too old for this shit, and his partner's oh, oh, like, uh, what's, what's the name what, of it? Why am I forgetting Lethal this? Weapon? Yes, the Lethal Weapon series. I mean, that's like an iconic duo that has yeah. been in film for forever. I'm that's, too old for this shit. <laughs> I couldn't, that's like the only thing I could think of. Yeah, oh, but that that's another great film and actor duo. Oh, man, oh, you, we didn't say Batman and Robin. Although, is that really a film duo? Do we get? Have, do we have enough Batman and no. Robin on film? No, we Where's, don't. We, 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 we haven't had that yet. That will change in 2025 okay. when Anna, right, no, well, it's like 2027 probably when that new Batman movie will come out. I gotta like slow you down because I might open up a can of worms. <laughs> you did, you did. I'll go back to something that's very Oscar-driven, uh, which is Christian Bale and Amy Adams who starred in, like, I think four films together, and almost every single one of those films, they were nominated for, like, Best Actor or Best Actress or Supporting Actress. Like, So I was at Vice, American Hustle. Were they both in The Fighter? They were both in The Fighter, I'm pretty sure, yeah. So they, they had, like, three... She was Mark Wahlberg's wife. He was the brother. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Looks like three movies together, but they've been Oscar-nominated every single time. So if we're staying yeah. on the, <laughs> the worthy Oscar track, like, those two are so synonymous together. I think they remind me also of Jennifer Lawrence and Bradley Cooper, who have also been nominated together in in Silver Linings Playbook and then would go on to be in two other films that didn't really land as well as, as Silver Linings Playbook when it comes to like the Oscars. Yeah. But those are, are two couples that I kind of remind, think of immediately. we got to think of Simon Pegg and Nick Frost. I mean, that's an iconic British duo that is all throughout film history, continuing to be probably in films together, which is exciting. Yeah. And another one built on volume also is Johnny Depp and Helena Bonham Carter. Yeah. Which is super interesting because growing up, I always saw them as like literally the opposites, like not opposites, but they were the male and female version of each other. Yeah. And so many films and it's a great partnership. It's a great duo. Other ones we've written down and these are some classic ones. Lucille Ball and Dizzy Arnaz, Catherine Hepburn, Spencer Tracy, even having now Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin more of the TV show, but Hey, they were in 80 for Brady, so it's got to count for something, right? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. You get Ben Stiller, uh, Owen Wilson, I mean, classic comedy duo. Yeah. Like, hopefully we get to see them again together. And then the rare comedy duo, who we'll probably never, ever see again together nope. because of Mr. James Franco's terrible behavior. But Seth Rogen and James Franco, I mean, what an iconic duo. Pineapple Express, I think, is one of the funniest comedies of all time. And it's it's a shame that, like, you can see a duo get broken apart like that. But it's so funny that we have Robert Redford and Paul Newman who've been so, like, synonymously tied together 
yet they've only been in two films you know it's surprising that they never got to like the third film together or they didn't do it later in time or later in their age because we missed that you know we could have gotten something special again before before he passed it's sad yeah no it is very sad but we do have this great movie we do get to talk about so why don't we dive into it john and let's answer that question is the sting worthy of the best picture award of 1973 the sting Two confidence men team up to pull off the ultimate con. In 1936 Great Depression America, Johnny Hooker, a grifter in Joliet, Illinois, with partners Luther Coleman and Joe Erie, con $11,000 in cash from an unsuspecting victim. Luther decides to retire and tells Hooker to seek out his old friend, Henry Gondorf, in Chicago to learn the big con. However, corrupt Joliet Police Lieutenant William Snyder confronts Hooker revealing that their mark was a courier for vicious Irish-American crime boss Doyle Lonigan. Lonigan's men murder both the courier and Luther, and Hooker flees to Chicago. Erie's involvement remains unknown to Lonigan. Hooker finds Gondorf, now hiding from the FBI running a carousel, actually a front for a brothel, and asks for his help in taking down Lonigan. Gondorf, aware of Lonigan's reputation, is reluctant but relents and recruits a team of experienced conmen. They decide to resurrect and elaborate obsolete scam known as The Wire, using a large crew to create a phony off-track betting parlor. Both Snyder and Lonigan's men track Hooker to Chicago. Gondorf warns Hooker that if either of them find him, the con will have to fold. Aboard the opulent 20th Century Limited, Gondorf, posing as a boorish Chicago bookie Shaw, buys into Lonigan's private high-stakes poker game and infuriates Lonigan with obnoxious behavior, then cheats him out of $15,000. Hooker, posing as Shaw's disgruntled employee, Kelly, is sent to collect the winnings and instead convinces Lonigan that he wants Lonigan's help to take over Shaw's operation. Lonigan, sufficiently rused against Shaw, takes the bait. Hooker returns home to find Lonigan's men waiting for him, but avoids their pursuit. Gondorf is spooked by their proximity, but Hooker convinces him to keep the con alive. Snyder's pursuit of Hooker attracts the attention of undercover FBI agents led by Agent Polk, who orders Snyder to bring Hooker in to entrap Gondorf. At the same time, Lonigan has grown frustrated with his men's inability to find and kill Hooker for the Juliet Con and orders Salino, his best assassin, be given the job. A mysterious figure with black gloves begins following and observing Hooker. Kelly gives Lonigan a tip on an 8-1 long shot that pays off. When Lonigan presses him for details, he reveals that he has a partner, Les Harmon, actually con man Kit Twist, in the Chicago Western Union office, who will help them topple Shaw by winning bets he books on horse races through past posting. Lonigan is convinced after being provided the trifecta of another race and agrees to finance a $500,000 bet to break Shaw and get revenge. Shortly thereafter, Snyder captures Hooker and brings him before Polk, who forces Hooker to betray Gondorf by threatening to jail Luther Coleman's widow. Feeling despondent the night before the sting, Hooker sleeps with a diner waitress named Loretta. The next morning, as she walks towards him in the alley, the black glove man appears and shoots her dead. The man reveals that he was hired by Gondorf to protect Hooker and reveals that the waitress was in fact Selena. 
Lonigan bets $500,000 at Shaw's Parlor on Lucky Dan to win at 4-1 to odds. As the race begins, Harmon arrives and expresses shock at Lonigan's bet. When he said place it, he meant that Lucky Dan would place, i.e. finish second. In a panic, Lonigan rushes to the teller window and demands his money back, at which point Polk, Snyder, and a half dozen FBI agents storm the parlor. Polk tells Hooker he is free to go. Shocked at the betrayal, Gondorf shoots Hooker in the back. Polk shoots Gondorf and orders Snyder to get the ostensibly respectable Lonigan away from the crime scene. With Lonigan and Snyder safely away, Hooker and Gondorf rise amid cheers and laughter. Polk is actually Hickey, running a con within the con to divert Snyder and ensure that Lonigan abandons the money and never knows he was taken. As the comments strip the room of its contents, Hooker refuses his share of the money and walks away with Gondorf. The Sting was directed by George Roy Hill. Written by David S. Ward. Produced by Tony Bill, Julia Phillips, and Michael Phillips. Cinematography by Robert Surtees. Editing by William Reynolds. Art direction by Henry Bumstead. And costume design by Edith Head. The Sting starred Paul Newman as Henry Gondorf. Robert Redford as Johnny Hooker. Robert Shaw as Doyle Lonigan. Charles Durning as Lieutenant Snyder. Ray Walston as J.J. Singleton. Eileen Brennan as Billy. Harold Gould as Kid Twist. Dana Eclair as FBI Agent Polk. So, The Sting, John, the 73 Best Picture winner, as we've said, starring Robert Redford and Paul Newman, is about a big con. And it's this, you know, very fun, almost like Ocean's Eleven type of film that is then accompanied by this crazy style of the 1930s mixed along with using the music of Scott Joplin as the inspiration and for most of the movie using the entertainer as that's the main theme of the whole film is what drives this uh, entire story so John like initial impressions of the movie when you first watched it like what what did you take coming out of it what did you know going into it I was kind of like I was shook when I first watched this movie in a weird way that I'll definitely get into. It just took me by surprise because I don't really know what it was. We just had The Godfather, which is such a serious film. That's just this legacy film. It's known as like one of the best films of all time. So I'm like, what are we going into now? It's like this iconic duo. What's about to happen? And I think I was just so so taken aback by the tone, like the goofy tone that this movie has, that I think on further viewings, you, you understand a little more why it's like that because of the 30s influence and because of the style that they were trying to replicate. But at first viewing, I was like, whoa, like, what is this? This is like <laughs> so goofy, so out there. And I really just kept thinking about George Roy Hill because the only other film I went through this whole catalog that I've seen is Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid which opens in like such a similar way where he like sets the tone and the vibe and he wants you to feel truly like you're in this era and that's exactly what he does here it's so slim similar where he introduces us right away with the universal like gold leaf 1930s logo which is so beautiful one like stunning and this may be one of the first times that they alter it and change the logo to like match the film i I don't know the whole history of that but i love how much we've taken that and and moved forward and and done that so often now in in film especially when it comes to warner brothers or universal are usually the most common studios that i see doing that 
But yeah, I think it just really took me by surprise just because we came off this very serious film that, you know, just has been so lauded and people love it. And no one really talks about this thing. I think it's it's pretty easy to say that. I don't really hear people often talking about this movie. They talk about the duo, but when they even talk about Paul Newman and Robert Redford, it's usually always Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. So you've seen this movie now probably like five times. What, what did you think <laughs> all the way back when you first watched it? What did you think of it after seeing The Godfather? Yeah, so absolutely. I think the Godfather aspect, I think, has to kind of be mentioned when you're going into the movie because you are coming off as huge, iconic movie that really sets the standard for the gangster mob movie. And one of the things that that I observed in our previous episode was that there's not a big, like, money or like prize they're going after in The Godfather. It's all about the family, you know, interworkings of it. And this is a not necessarily a gangster movie. They do have gangster characters, but it's about con men ripping them off. But, and, and having that big payoff, having, you know, the sting, you know, they're trying to get all this money. And so when I watched it for the first time, I I was like, Whoa, what, what is going on here? Like, (laughs) I like this, but this seems so like sticky and simple. And then the ending happens and you're so like engrossed in it and, and all the twists and turns that happens within like, two three minutes you're like oh my god like well, what, what's going on then you finish it and you're like wow i really enjoyed that like where's the sequel to this like it feels very <laughs> like you know franchising like it, it should like there is one like there but we don't, been a, we don't talk about that we don't talk about it it doesn't exist because uh, it doesn't have uh newman and redford yeah exactly uh, but and, and what also like catches your attention is the intro like you said not just the universal logo but then these like title cards and this like it's like a book almost like it feels like it's like these, this chat these chapter books that you're unfolding and you know each of the different there's six different parts to the story uh, there's the setup the hook the tail the wire the shutout and then the sting and all of them have these like really interesting uh, character caricatures and paintings and drawings on it that allude to kind of what's going on in that part of the story but you wouldn't know it until you experienced that part of it. So it, it's really cool style. It's a, a really unique storytelling device. And I just enjoyed it. But then that idea of like, is this movie too simple comes to mind like right away. That's it's interesting. I think if you want to like critique the film simplicity, you, you could look at it that way. You could look at it as just these two men, you know, learning to be good con men, really getting and achieving the con in the end is really their goal. And I, I would definitely want to get to, <laughs> to hooker's character and talk about his arc and what do we think that is what do we think that the kind of means but i want to wait till we get to the end of the movie till we kind of spoil that but i i do feel that in a way where this film is too simple and when they try to introduce other elements like R- loretta's character for instance it it happens so quickly that it just doesn't feel earned and i think that's because of how simple simple the film is but at the same time this movie works so well because of its editing because it's like non-stop mm-hmm. every scene is building up to the next scene there's no like meandering where characters are like you know f- being philosophers about their life and maybe i can't do this con anymore like we get a little bit of that but it's like no we got to keep moving and if it's ever stopping it's just to service the plot and service where we're going to achieve this con yeah one of the things that i texted you like after one of the watchings was this is the fastest two hours of a movie i've yeah. ever watched yeah. and it, it it happened again 
uh, earlier before watching. Like I have the movie again on right now, and it's just like flying by, and I can just like feel the pacing of the of the movie going through. I can feel the energy of it. It never stops, and I think like that's the cool building that they do with it, and like the subtle repetition that that Hill does with his directing and setting up of of key scenes in the movie. Um, it's very repetitive that like creates the suspense and it hooks you right in, and all of a sudden you're in the last five minutes of the movie and you're like what's gonna happen <laughs> oh my god they like what they killed each other and then you know the big reveal so uh and you know we'll we'll get to that part so there's i don't know if you want to start just from the beginning john of like other of of, of a specific scene or if there's something else that happens towards the uh the middle of the movie i think we could probably break it down based on our like pivotal six points that they provide us in the film I mean, really, the only thing that's outside of it is the beginning is, yeah. you know, introducing Johnny Hooker, the first heist, and then Luther saying he's out, too old for this shit and then dying. So do you know who, you know, the actor of Luther? He looks so familiar. I didn't even look it up I, now that you say I that, want but... I, I, I want you to just when you're editing this, you're going to be like, God damn it. How did I not look this up? That is Robert Earl Jones, the father of James Earl Jones. No way. Yeah. Interesting. Yep. And now that you say that, I remember looking through IMDb and and seeing his name, and I'm like, there's no relationship, right? Like, that would be crazy. I like, didn't I've think never there heard was a relationship. Anything. Yeah. Yeah, I've never heard anything about his dad. So, like, his dad must have been a very, like, legacy actor that we just probably haven't seen many of his films or performances, right? Which is, like, sad. Yeah sad to see but his son got to have this amazing legacy and probably lifted his father's name up with him too yeah uh, movies that robert earl jones was in was he was in lying lips which is a movie from 39 he was in the sting he was also in trading places um he was a witness in 85 who was he in trading places yeah Uh, you know (laughs) <laughs> like that's the thing is like he's in the movie and it doesn't list him as like one of the main characters but regardless um yeah really cool little like oh my god james Earl jones's dad and james Earl jones gets his like notoriety in like four years from this point which yeah. we'll get to that part uh of the oscars and the star wars because we will tie this into star wars somehow um but yeah so it's the the beginning happens they they had that really cool like first con where they got like the initial like ten thousand dollars and he gets that six suit uh you know he spends all the money that kind of like makes you realize that oh Johnny's a wild card kind of guy but then Luther dies and they get into really what the movie's about it's like this revenge plot almost to like get a revenge yeah. for this this guy who taught him everything yeah no it is kind of like a revenge story in a way and and before we get on to the setup our first chapter here. I just want to acknowledge because I think this will play into when I talk about how I look at this film overall and how I think it's it's pretty meaningful and, and, and an interesting change for what we've seen for best pictures. And that's kind of like the kind of genre and the ideology that George Roy Hill kind of takes when he's making this film. And specifically, not only just his direction, but definitely credit to David S. Ward for his writing. And I think you immediately see it right away in that introduction scene where you have Luther and Hooker and they're involved in this kind of, as the viewer, you're very confused. You're like, what's going on? Like, who's who? Like, 
why he he's he's stealing them no they need to give the money back like it's a little like hard to follow at first and then you realize it's because they are conning they are pretending to <laughs> show like a fake robbery and then having this con of stealing money which then results to being a rabbit or pulling on the snake's tail and taking them down this rabbit hole so i just wanted to first say that because it's the first moment in the writing where you can see that this movie is very well aware of audience perception and what audiences are used to in films and and how we can kind of mess with that and we can flip it on its head to trick you as the viewer and have a twist in a way yeah there's a lot of twists within this movie and yeah you're absolutely right to that they do start off with a a twist of the film they end off a twist and you can never really trust what's going on i think like and you want to believe you know the characters but you also are very suspicious of what you're not seeing what you what you what what hill is not showing you so it it definitely leaves you a little bit on edge and and i think that's what keeps you engaged with the movie though yeah definitely it definitely keeps you engaged and then you have the amazing posters that kind of take you from each each section basically and i the setup is our first introduction and we don't get to paul newman's character gondorf until i think 26 minutes into the film and that's when we get to the setup and we have you know hooker's character played by redford going to meet who he's been told is this iconic con man like the best of the best the guy who's done it all and can handle any sort of job and he's even done the big con himself so interesting like setup where you you're building this person up you're building them up and you're like what are we about to see like who is this big awesome bravado like this cool stunning con man like who is it about to be and then you just find this passed out paul newman squished in between his bed and the wall and it's like this oh man and this is it's funny when you look at this movie it feels like there's a lot of stereotypes in this movie a lot of stereotypes in a way where they're it's the opposite of what you expect. But now the opposite of what we expect in 2023 and the 2020s like is to expect a twist. This is hard to explain because what we're seeing is a new adaptation on storytelling in, in the film medium and, and trying to make it fresh and, and switch things around. So instead of, you know, Paul Newman being this like awesome, cool guy that we've talked about and we keep saying he's great. No, it's the opposite. We're subverting what the audience is expecting, and we're just seeing passed out Gondorf, who just got too drunk the night before. So I'm curious, like, what do you think of this first introduction of Paul Newman's character, and and how do you feel that it took so long, 26 minutes, until we get to even meet him? Well, I think that's like the pacing part I was talking about. Is you don't realize 26 minutes have passed until you get to meet him, and it's a you know it's a funny introduction. It feels like kind of classic where like the the student is coming to meet the teacher and the teacher's like, oh, I'm washed up. I, you know, just like a drunk. And, but then he gets like reinvigorated by like what happens. And again, the catalyst of, of Luther being killed and hunted down really. Um, and it, and it really got, it's like the bond that brings them together. And one of the lines that Gondorf, you know, hookers, like, can you get a mob together? I mean, can we get people together for this con? And Gondorf's like, after what happened to Luther, I don't think I can get more than two, 300 guys. So it's like a big cause. Like everyone is, and it's a large group of people. They they get to do the con. Um, we should definitely talk about that at some point and the logistics of that. Um, but yeah, so they definitely like had this like energy. And so the intro, it's like it's just a funny little 
sequence like watching him like trying to get him sober up throwing him into the shower it was probably like a big like haha moment in the theaters oh yeah everyone was watching it. like yeah. hilarious because it that again that's a scene that we've seen like how many movie scenes have we can we can think of whether it's someone who is too drunk whether it's someone who just can't wake up someone who's overdosed like there are so many different variations of this scene that we've seen uh, where you throw someone in in the shower turn on the shower wake them up but here it probably felt so fresh and new and you're like oh what the hell like this this is the guy like this is this is the cool con man who can get the big con done like this is weird like who is this guy which is interesting because there he's such a different character than Butch Cassidy and the Sundance and in the Sundance kid and they're both so different and it's so interesting and i think this film does such a great job of showing just how good of actors both of these men are especially robert redford i think my first viewing of this film it was like what is this performance like it seems like okay like at first glance i didn't really appreciate it that much but it's not until the second viewing where you're like oh he's playing a character he's showing his cards here he's not showing his cards there it is a much much more complicated performance than i thought at first and i think that is is very clear from his first introductory scene but I want to talk as we keep going, and I think it might be the best scene in the entire film, which is the the poker game. You know, they're on this luxury yep. train, which was so cool, seeing how they kind of recreated that train and, and made it look so real and the interiors of it and everything like that. And the setup, I, I even love the, the, the hook we have here where he's explaining to him, you know, he's drinking some of the gin, but he's putting water in it. And you can see how nervous Hooker is compared to Gondorf, who's like done this before. And you as the viewer, you're trying to catch up. You're like, what is Gondorf doing? He's like telling me he's putting the water in. So you never just take straight shots. You can hide it in the gin. But you're like, what? And it's not until he steps into that poker room where you're like, oh, this is what he's doing. He's he's so good at this that like you as the audience have to like chase after him to figure out what he's doing. And he's so good at playing drunk. Like, God, uh, that scene is hysterical. It's so funny. Yeah, no, it, it's a great. He he's great in that scene, and just the the whole like showing the card tricks and the the complicated shuffling. Like, it wasn't Newman, but somebody who knew how to do that. But it was a cool like character development there. You're like, wow, this guy has a lot. And then he like fumbles the cards. You're like, oh, does he really have this? But <laughs> then he clearly does, and he gets under the skin of Lonigan. And like Shaw's great also in that scene, reacting and just. Just like fireball is just like Boiling. fuck this yeah, yeah just like, fuck this guy <laughs> and there, there's just so many great um lines with, within that uh Lonneman. <laughs> keeps calling him Lonneman. <laughs> yeah well yeah so i have so here it is mr shaw we usually require a tie at this table if you don't have one we can get you one that'd be real like that would be real nice for you mr Lonneman. lonigan <laughs> <laughs> the fact that he just keeps doing it is so freaking funny yeah. And that's so funny. That line, too, implies, like, it's basically asking him to leave. Like, that's straight up implying yeah. the subtext is, we don't want you here. Like, just leave because you're not, you're one way too drunk. You're not dressed appropriately. We don't want you here. And instead, to be even more of an asshole, he's just like, oh, that'd be great. Give, give me a tie. Like, yeah. I would love that. And then gets his <laughs> name wrong on top of it. So funny. And they also stole his money before, like, because you know, as the audience, that they took all the money that he did have and. you're just like man how like what is he gonna do like and they're they're beating up his ego which is what makes lonigan like what drives him to be like no fuck these guys i'm gonna i'm gonna be you know it's a hook line sinker type of thing yeah um 
but it's great. It's it's a great you know scene, and again, like that has tension as well because you don't know again like how the card game is going to end, and then you know like uh oh, like Gondorf doesn't have the hand, and then all of a sudden he turns the three threes into the three jacks, and he wins. And you're like, Which, how the fuck did he do how? that? Yeah, again, keeping the audience away to be surprised yourself, yeah. right? Again, yeah, one of those you, tricks. You never get to see it. Um, but yeah, but then we get introduced to... Well, we kind of introduced Shaw's character a little bit before, but to have that them playing off each other, I thought was like a really great part of the entire film when they do have those like... I think it's like three I- interactions they really have. And they really just like want to bite each other's heads off. Yeah, it's so great. But then that leads us again to subverting, not subverting your expectations. This is more where the lines really start to get blurred because the film knows exactly what to tell the audience. You know, it's going to clue you in. We know that they're trying to like set him up. We're trying to like get the hook into Lonigan and start the process of this, this con. And we yeah. don't really know exactly what the plan is. And that's why the writing is so good in this movie is it's telling you just enough so you know what the plot is. You know kind of what they're trying to do. You know what the end goal is, but you don't know exactly how they're doing it. So when Hooker comes into play and he comes in and does the reverse and he gets kind of beat up a little bit by Lonigan and, and, and told to kind of basically join their side or die in a way to simplify it, it it's yeah. kind of confusing for the viewer. You're kind of like, well, is he doing this to like make sure – this doesn't work like am i on his side i don't know how how did you feel throughout this movie because for me it, it, the movie did such a good job at tricking the viewer that i was just even from this moment i was like is hooker already trying to find his escape plan is he already trying to bail out of this con by you know getting the on the good side of gondorf probably not because we've seen this movie so many times now at this point, yeah right well i think that's the problem with um with watching it a second time is that oh i know what happens so a lot of the mystique and the intrigue goes away, but it's still a really good buildup. And, and I think that you're able to enjoy all the other aspects like the, you know, how, how the style, the style, how stylized it is, the costuming, you know, how they shoot it. You get like more into those details where the first time you're watching it, you are really engrossed with the story. And ultimately, I think that's what makes it, you know, why it's a great movie or yeah. why, it's a, why it deserves to win the award, I would say because it's an engaging story from start to finish and and that's what film should be in its essence are really engaging stories the setup was they you know luther dies they're they realize they have to go out to lonigan the hook is them on the train they get they they poke the bear they're like okay now this is starting to get rolling literally a train moving it's quite literal like what they're doing at the hook you're they're hooking not just lonigan they're hooking us as the audience into this con and now we get to the tale and the tale. Uh, so first is the introduction of the Salino character. Lonigan is like sent Salino on the case to go after. He doesn't realize that it is hooker, you know, that he's going, or he thinks hooker is Kelly, but he thinks that hooker is probably somebody else who stole that initial like $10,000 in the beginning of the movie. So he sets Salino on the case and we don't know who Salino is. Um, and again, like it's Lonigan being hooked they show him like how the whole like trick works they say like okay like you're gonna get a call you're gonna then have like three minutes to go to the window in shaw's place and put the bed in and it's really cool how the operation is because it's again i was saying the repetitiveness they establish okay you're in the pharmacy 
Kid Twist is looking in from the window. They get the they find what call they want to do, which race they're gonna say, you know, happened and trick Lonigan. They send it in. Then he walks over and he puts the cash in. And then the race goes. And it's like all these same repetitive shots and and movements and motions that go on for the three chapters, but each have like a different thing. So this first one, the tale is to be like, well, this is how it works. This is this fairy tale aspect, this fairy tale cash, you know, cow that they could have. If they do this properly. And I think that scene in particular, especially when Lonigan comes in, he's doing his first bet, is a great example of how Redford and Newman are playing characters inside of characters. You know, yeah. it's the first time that he gets Lonigan gets to see this man who who truly <laughs> duped him. And this guy does not get duped very often. And if he does, you're dead. That's pretty clear of how they establish this character. He's very ominous, even from how we introduce him. He's in shadow and he's getting whispered into his ear. Very much like The Godfather, the way they kind of first introduced Lonigan's character. But it's not until this first scene where he goes and, and bets and lands the horse bet that we really get to see. Redford's kind of, you know, he's trying to play his cards with Lonigan, but he's getting completely shut down by Gondorf. He's he's showing him and trying to convince Lonigan that I this is my bitch. Like, this is the person that is basically my assistant. He'll do whatever I say. Even at one point, Hooker's like, I handle his books. Like, he'll never know. Give me the money. Yeah. Like, he'll never know. Which, again, is another kind of, like, quick line of dialogue where you're like, wait, does he just actually want the money for himself? Like, is Hooker actually conning Gondorf? I just, like, kept going back and forth throughout the so entire you re- movie. you really didn't. Yeah. Like, I don't think I, uh, you know, I don't think I had that feeling the first time watching it where I was like, oh, they really are going to cr- double cross each other. It, w- it wasn't until the FBI part where I was like, oh, shit, they are like, he's going to cross him, yeah. uh, which then we find, you know, I got conned in that regard. <laughs> but I, I think that's like what adds to the whole like suspense of it. And just, you know, and like how this movie feels like we say it's stylized like the 30s, but it feels very 70s and cool. It's like Ocean's Eleven, you know, kind of like Ocean's Eleven feels like the movie that I want to relate this one to, yeah. you know, because they're you know getting a bunch of people together and like how they do it is very like same to that kind of like formula. Um, so, yeah. So the tale like gets you in. Um, they show them how the trick works. Um, and then we get into the wire part of the story. So the fourth part. And that's when they when Lonigan like kind of is like, OK. So I need to see and meet the person that's actually doing this. And they have to come up with another character and aspect of the entire thing, which like I was thinking like how, like what did they think they were going to do? Like not have that part, but then the character becomes like crucial in the whole end game of the entire thing, unless they're flying by the seat of their pants and figuring this out as they go along and able to adapt. I guess. I don't know if that there's a couple things here. That's a little, unclear of like which direction we're kind of supposed to be going in but again i think that plays into you know is this supposed to happen is this just the change of the plan are we adapting to the plan as we go and i love that the film kind of keeps you at a distance in a way where it's just giving you enough just giving you enough to keep going you know what we're trying to do we're trying to con line again we're trying to take all this irishman's money because he's a bad dude the film is always well enough to tell you exactly where we're going but it'll let you kind of get lost in the sauce here and there but just keep you there enough so you know exactly where you're going 
We didn't talk too much about Snyder's character, the cop that's constantly chasing after yeah. Robert Redford's character. And this is something that I just hated when I first watched this movie. This is something yeah. that I first watched. I'm like, this is so goofy. Like, this just doesn't match a lot of the rest of the tone of the movie. I don't understand this. And then it wasn't until my second viewing, reading more about George Roy Hill, understanding him a little more where I got to the point of like, this is so intentional. This is in fact so intentional where you hear the entertainer music again. It's almost like trying to completely replicate a silent film and those classic silent film, the train robberies, the, the classic, just, you know, robber chasing after cops chasing after the robber. It's just replicating that, but in a modern time using our modern skills and our modern tools that we have now for filmmaking if the first time I watched it though I was just like this is so goofy I hate this like I don't like this goofy chase but now when I looked I'm like wow one it is a pretty inventive way to escape very cool shots very like 70s of like the zoomings and and following hooker kind of run away from Snyder and then just great montage with the music chasing playing over it as the whole chase is going on so it wasn't until like my second viewing where that really clicked with me and, and i really i went on to appreciate it a lot more uh, but i do agree it is very goofy and it's like the those are the moments in the movie where I, it's not my favorite parts it, it does feel kind of unnecessary but like then at the end it, it does wrap in so nicely with the twist which then again makes me question of like, well, how do they expect to wrap up the entire thing? Like, what was the original plan before Gondorf learned about Snyder? Before they had to like deal with that? Like, I don't know what the original plan was for Lonigan at the end of the of the whole sting. Well, why couldn't that have always been the plan? Is there something that? Oh, the the FBI barging in? Maybe. Yeah, yeah. Maybe that was just always a part of their plan. It's just the film yeah, but keeps that... you unaware of it. Yeah, but then I guess we had to, but then but then they had to have like set up the whole like FBI like headquarters or thing to fool Snyder, so they probably had to get that quickly together. So like it's like those kinds <laughs> of things where it's like, wait, but how's that work? I guess because we didn't see it off screen, but then they wrap it up so nicely as well, and like you have like really good outs. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a pretty interesting thing that they, they again they keep you on your toes that you don't really know what's going on. And it's comedy as well with some of the things they do, like in the part where they go to the Western Union and they take over that guy's office. And they're just like, oh, we came here to paint. And they leave it like half painted after they had use of the room for the five seconds they needed it for. Uh, it's a full <laughs> great lot of scene. Such a great yeah. scene. Yeah, very, very nice. So that happens. And then the next like con thing they do is, and this is the next chapter, is the shutout. So they, again, the repetition of, they get the call in. They, you know, Lonigan, yeah, waits for it, and then he, he's basically Lonigan at this point is like, I'm gonna supply all the money for this because I, I'm like hooked in. Like I believe that this is gonna work. I want to get Shaw. I want to get that, you know, all this money because I want to like stick it to him. And so he's like so clouded by his own ego um, that they again they use that against him to show him again that the con can work, but not actually con him just yet. Um, so they show him with, and the shutout. It's like a re another really great plot, and like, and 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 the re and the repetitiveness of it of like, okay, they set it up, they go there, and all of a sudden, too so many people are in the line, and they stop him. And you're like, oh damn, didn't get to see how that one resulted. But again, it feed into that ego of Lonigan to want to bet the big money uh, against Shaw. 
Yeah, he he's already kind of there. He just needed a little bit more proof just to talk to the guy, get that second uh, like second just confirmation. Even though it didn't all the way go there, it was just enough to keep him hooked and be ready to kind of jump fully in for Archon. I really loved it. I loved it so much. I and that's close to we're about getting to where we introduced the FBI right for the first time. Where yeah, so come into well, the diner right. Well, they, well, they, the diner thing with, um, with Hooker and, um, and what, Loretta? I forgot her name. Loretta's character. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So, like, that thing happens, but Snyder gets taken in by the FBI and they, like, start conning him, but then Snyder brings Hooker in there. You're like, you have to get Hooker to come in. So he brings him in. And then I think I totally forgot this line until, uh, till earlier today where, he said where they're talking about um hook you know the fbi polk is saying something about a snyder and how snyder knows something and then hooker says yeah well snyder doesn't know shit and uh, the fact that he like had like doesn't know shit you know in this movie for you know 73 was probably like oh my god i can't believe he said that like on screen everyone and and this huge movie too is probably just like the oh shit moment Literally, yeah, oh shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it probably made people go like, oh my god, I can't believe that. Which the film, again, a credit to the writing, has such great lingo. And it has like lingo that pushes you all the way back to the 30s. Really makes you feel like you're there. And, and obviously, we they talked about the amazing production design, the beautiful costuming by Edith Head. Like, come on. It's amazing. Yeah. I, I kind of felt this way about it. I'm not sure if you did. Because... What George Roy Hill is trying to do is truly replicate this period of time where there's big empty sets. You're clearly on a back lot. You know, even the costuming looks very similar to the 30s where everything's like so perfect. You know, nothing really feels lived in. It doesn't really feel like authentically real, which I'm curious what you think about that. Like it it reminds me of when we see films nowadays where there are a throwback. There are supposed to be taking you back, but it's like all the cars look perfectly pristine, like they've never been driven. The suits look like they like are perfectly crisp, you know, like everything feels yeah. a little artificial. Well, that was something I observed as well because it does feel so perfect, but then you also wonder do we overemphasize the dirtiness sometimes of the past? And do we like really like do we make it too like grungy and dirty because we think that it's that's how it should be or should it be more clean because it's all new stuff for that time so it does it should look shiny and new in some regards right but i think that's what makes it a fun style because you want to really it's like subverts that expectation it's i'm not saying exactly like it but it's like and this is an extreme but like dick tracy is like so stylized like, and this feels not like to that extreme but it's like that same style that where it's like a little too emphasized on the costumes, but like not enough to make you feel like, well, that's not part of this world type of thing. You still believe it would feel that way in this 30s setting. Yeah. It makes me really want to jump into his filmography because I've seen Butch Cassidy, Sundance kid and his follow-up film. Now this it's like, what are all of his films? Well, his follow-up film actually is slaughterhouse five and then the sting in 1973. But it made me so curious, like, are all of his films this? Is he really just, like, obsessed with different eras and time, moments in time, and and kind of recreating them and bringing them to life? And then doing a little bit of research, I found this interview that he did, and I'm like, boom, it clicked right away. And I'll read it here. 
quote, just as I play nothing but Bach for pleasure, so do I read nothing but history for pleasure. I like to be able to sit back and pick out the most fascinating facets of an era. You have a better perspective. In the present, you get too caught up in the heat of the emotions. It's so interesting that he, I, I could feel it. You know, I can feel this man's passion for recreating a time period. And both Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and now the Sting. This man truly feels like it's his mission to kind of like recreate eras of time. And I'm sure he doesn't do this for every single film. Slapshot looks very much like it's in the 70s, you know. But it makes me really want to dive deep into Hill's filmography because it's it's fascinating. Like this man is able to like muster up this feeling and, and this aura from these different time periods. It makes me really want to dive deep into his filmography. But I'm glad we got to talk a little bit about that because it was so interesting. It just kept making me so curious. Like why is this why, what is this man's obsession for it? And I, I really love that. So where were we in terms of the plot? We were talking about Loretta. Do we want to go into their romance? I think we well, need to. Yeah, we can get into it. It sounds like you were very, you know, like, what the fuck is this going on? And even for me watching a second time, I thought she came in way earlier in the movie. And she comes in, like, so late. You're just like, what? What is this character? But it's like, okay. But the thing that the beginning does, they show all the characters. They say, like, oh, this character will show up. So unless you're, like, thinking, like, oh, when is that character? Like, when am I going to see her? You're kind of like, wait, who is she? Like, why is she now important? And for me, it's, again, one of those things where it's like, why is he sleeping with her? Like, why is he going down this rabbit hole? Like, he's just trying to, like, blow off some some nervous before the big con like why yeah why do you, yeah why do you, he just feels it? i think you know? that he feels alone yeah that he kind of like says you know talks about feeling alone and you know finding somebody late at night just two strangers it's uh i guess i it's just like i didn't get any of that from his character previously it felt really out of nowhere it felt not really built up in a way like maybe we see him earlier on with like the cabaret dancer or the burlesque yeah. dancer that he takes out on a date and loses all of his money gambling but it's like we don't really understand his character and his relationship to women and where they kind of play into his life as a con man does he not date is he not interested in women because of him being a con man he can't deal with his life you know it's like you open up this can of worms by introducing someone like loretta but then don't explore more about his relationship with her or women in general. But then couldn't you argue that her, that she is the assassin, you know, the assassin in this scenario. So she is trying to seduce him, you know, into, you know, to get him into her good graces. So maybe what we feel like is like, why is like, why is he doing this? He, maybe she's a great seducer and got him hooked. (laughs) You know, which I don't buy, you know, going. Well, back, yeah, of course we don't buy, but we can try like reason that that maybe that's why that happened. And maybe it's her performance. Maybe it's the actress that they chose. I don't buy her performance. It doesn't feel like a dual performance. When you go back and watch Robert Redford as hooker, you can see these moments where he is purposely giving you a little bit to show that he's still kind of there on, on the right side, but it's like, Ooh, maybe he's not. He meets with the FBI. They convince him to give up, you know, give up his main man here in Gondorf. Is he going to do it? Is he, you can feel that kind of like manipulation of his performance. But when it comes to Loretta, it's like, this is just some diner lady. We don't know enough about her. We don't spend enough of time with her to really be suspicious of her. So then when it does get to this jarring, shocking moment, it is shocking because we're like, whoa, why did she just get shot in the head? 
which was just so comically bright red and and violent yeah. and in our face and then we reveal who we thought was our you know our assassin this entire time has really been protecting hooker which is like a cool twist but it is done in a very goofy way this is one of the moments of the film that i i laugh it's not supposed to be serious or it's not supposed to be funny at all it's very serious moment it's like this person you just connected with boom get shot in the head oh my god she was about to shoot me too oh my god this is not the assassin who i thought was the assassin. it's crazy it's supposed to be like mind-blowing but for me it's like so goofy her getting shot in the head is like ridiculous then the way the who we thought was the assassin. I'm not sure what his name is. Run the way he runs. I don't know if you noticed something <laughs> yeah. about the, the way he runs just like cracks me up. And then Robert Redford's like reaction of like the bug guy, like what is happening is like also yeah. so goofy. And then the way Robert Redford runs away too. Like there's something just like ridiculous about this whole scene. And it is shocking. Yeah. Don't get me wrong, but it just I- didn't work for me. Okay, I did write down that it was like the true twist of the movie because you weren't expecting that to happen. Yeah, you know, out of everything, like you weren't expecting like him to potentially be assassinated by you know this woman that he had just met. Like, you know, you just didn't think that she would have been it because of how they were portraying everything else. So it's a really good twist, but it is a little goofy and just like why okay why wouldn't she kill him at night like that's also another thing that breaks the logic for me entirely because well no because the guy said well yeah he's like well people would have seen you go up there so people would have gotten suspicious come on that's fucking ridiculous yeah, <laughs> that's I ridiculous. Agree. I agree. That's like, it's, uh, <laughs> I was going to say, it felt like a moment where you, it felt, honestly, it felt like a reshoot. And I'm sure it's not a reshoot. That was probably less common no. at this point in time. But it felt like someone watched the movie and brought up, like, the question, like, well, they just slept together. Like, why wouldn't Loretta just kill him at night? And they're like, oh, shit. Like, we didn't, <laughs> we didn't explain that really, did we? And then they're like, oh, well, we'll film this quick scene of them driving in the car together where he questions, like, well, why wouldn't Loretta just kill me last night? Then? And like, it felt like they just added it in to, you know, let's get that out of your head, viewer. Like, there is a good reason. Come on. That's not yeah. a good reason. Like, what? I, there weren't that many people around. Like, come on. I she could have strangled him. Like, so many other options. I think the device that they're going for is that there's so many little plot lines going on. And you have to keep track of so much that you almost lose focus on the big thing, which then get you know leaves you twisted and and you don't know how it's all going to be resolved because you're trying to figure out how do all these pieces fit with each other. And yeah, maybe it seems excessive and not necessary, but you could also argue it is necessary to for the plot and to keep you engaged and to wonder and to be intrigued. Like how is like is this person involved with this? Like can I? And and that's also what you lose when after you watch it the first time and you know what happens. So this is all part of the last chapter called The Sting. So we kind of get a, a repeat because you have the intro card, The Sting. Now this is The Sting itself. And it starts off with that attempted murder. Now they're going, you know, now again, that that third uh, time that they're giving Lonigan the, 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 the cheat, the, the wire, saying that, okay, like this horse is going to win. Um starts again so it starts in the pharmacy he you know goes to you know put it in he has five hundred thousand dollars and this is i kind of want to take the the brief second to ask this it's like so it's they're conning him for five hundred thousand dollars and if i had to guess there's probably at least 40 people involved in this so what was everybody's share 
how, like did Hooker and, and Gondorf get this like huge piece of the entire pie and then split among everybody else? Like there's a lot of people involved in so many different variables that could have like made this go wrong and only and I know it's nineteen thirty, so five hundred thousand dollars I'm sure is a crazy amount, um, in today's world. But it's still like a little fascinating like how 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 are they gonna pay everybody with just the five hundred thousand? Um, so I don't know if that like crossed your mind at all as in terms of like, wait, how much are they doing this for? Yeah, I'm sure there's a whole hierarchy of, you know, how much you participated, you know, how much you really were engaged in every kind of step of the way. If you're just some random person who's there to like play a random job, then, you know, you get like a, a point five percent or something of the take or something really small but five hundred thousand dollars like it doesn't seem that crazy and ridiculous but for 2023 and and adjusted for inflation is 11 million dollars (laughs) so let's use that number kind of for our context and split that between 40 people it's like I, i would imagine 10 of the 40 people are getting the majority of it the the lighter half you know, goes to the people that are just kind of stand-ins, really. Yeah, I guess you know, I guess do too get, much. I guess getting like you know maybe a hundred k for it is probably a good piece of the pie to get. Oh my god, it, it would be yeah. crazy, you know, to back yeah. then. But, what would it be like? Ten, maybe five grand. Ten well, grand would be huge. Well, maybe it is. Maybe it is the ten grand like at the guy at the beginning of the movie, and they were like, yeah. "Wow, look how rich we are!" And they were like, um, "Oh my god!" And that yeah. he blows all of it too on top of it. <laughs> so, which is kind of how the movie ends. And uh, so they're in this, um, again, it's final, like, good, another good tension moment between Shaw, Gondorf's character, and Lonigan, where it's like, you're going to bet $500,000, and he calls them, a, you know, he's like, you're not just a cheat, you're a gutless cheat, you know, Lon- Lonigan to, to Gondorf, and he's like, and that's what he uses as his character's motivation to take the bet, because initially he's like, oh, we're not going to take it, and he's like, okay, take it, and that's when the fix is in. And then Kid Twist character comes in and it was like, no, I told you to place that the course is going to place, not to win. And then, you know, Lonigan runs out to the window. He's like, I need my money back. There's been a mistake. And then, bam, the FBI barges in. So now you're like, what the hell is going on? The <laughs> FBI actually did get them. Like, like well, how is this all going to work? And one of the brilliant things that is so subtle is the main guy, Polk, uh, says to Snyder, because Snyder's with the FBI guys, he's like, he points him to Lonigan right away. Like you take Lonigan and that kind of like separates them to like, then keep the con going. That's so interesting. And I didn't even notice that I've seen this movie twice yeah. now and I didn't notice that a little, a slight movement. Is that so they can shoot each other? Well, no, it's so, you know, to get Snyder to believe that, um, that what is happening in front of Snyder is real because Snyder has been after hooker. Yeah. So sure. Snyder, you know, but then he's like, oh, shit, Lonigan, who is, I don't know, like, he's, like, somewhat, I guess, pu- you know, public, you know, but he's, I guess, also notoriously public, you know, for his underworld shit. Uh, but it's like, oh, we don't want to have him involved with this. Yeah, so, so let's get they, him out of here quick. Let's yeah. get him out of here. But but before they can do that, they, what seems like the final twist in revenge when Polk has said to Hooker, well, you can get out of here, as if, like, the double crossing, and that's when... Gondorf where you're like oh shit he shoots Hooker you're like so fast. wait a second yeah it's like whoa whoa what just happened and then all of a sudden Polk shoots him and you're like wait both of them are dead you, you're like I remember watching that for the first time I was like what whoa, whoa, whoa hold the fuck on <laughs> and it actually reminds and this is a movie from you know I think the early 2000s you ever see a movie called Bandits with uh, Bruce Willis and Billy Bob Thornton no 
I have no idea what that is. You should watch that movie. <laughs> because the twist in that movie is like very similar. I don't even want to say it like what happens because it's like it's, it's so similar. good. It, yeah, but it's so good with how they do it that it definitely took inspiration from this movie. Mm. And it's and it's so well done. Like, how many movies have a twist like that where you think, oh, my God, they crossed each other. They killed each other. And, but no, they did. They were both alive anyways. And it was all a big ruse. They were able to get it all figured out. Yeah. I got a lot of, like, seven psychopaths from this movie. Like, a similar vibe of, like, a lot of characters constantly twisting and, and kind of, like, subverting expectations. But this this is how good this this ending is. I was angry. They both <laughs> shot each other and it was like comically dead, which again perfectly matches the deaths of the thirties. The drastic like you got shot once and you're just fell to the ground and died. Not like you're just screaming like ah my intestines. Like you would just be in agonizing pain and slowly bleed out. But no, this is a nineteen thirties film that they're recreating. He's just gonna get shot and fall over. So instead, I was so pissed. I see that happening, and I'm like, this is a <laughs> terrible ending. Why do people like this movie so much? Because it really felt like they're winding down, like the two leads are dead. How like how do we end this movie? This is terrible. Yeah. It's not until they reveal that this is the con, that you yourself are conned. And then I was just like, oh, my God. Like, are you serious? <laughs> they got me? Like, I've seen so many movies. This is a 50-year-old movie, and they got me so bad. Like, how? Yeah, they- that got you good, it? yeah, and that's like the f- the fun of it. Like, and you're like, like what? Like how? Like again, that's the same thing with the card trick. Like, how do they do the card trick? How how was he able to get that to happen? How they slip that by us? And yeah, you know, rewatching it, you don't get any sense of like that's what's gonna happen. They don't really they don't use guns either. You know, Gondor for or Hooker. So it's like how you know. So the when the gun appears, you're like, well, that's so out of character. Like this, it and like it didn't even show. I guess them even breaking apart. So I think that's what also makes the, the them like them shooting each other like so like whoa what the fuck is like you didn't expect them to just like fly off the handle like that, but it's the whole twist and turn of it and you're being conned while the con is happening, and then yeah. it ends on just this like hopeful I guess a hopeful note because they get it all figured out, and then they have that line of well what are you gonna do if you're half oh I'm not gonna take it I'll you know I'll just I'm just gonna blow it. And then you're like, oh, great. I can't wait for the sting, too. Can't wait to see them <laughs> which team never up again. happens. Yeah, which never happens. Well, I want to talk about Hooker's character kind of wrapping this up. And I have a couple more questions for you after. But Hooker's character rejects the money. He doesn't want the money. He said, I'm going to lose it and blow it off anyway. He walks away. Gondorf is now an extremely rich, wealthy man. Do they continue doing cons? Probably. That's kind yeah. of that's kind of the intention that you get from the end of the movie. So I'm curious, what do you think like Hooker's perspective is on this whole thing? Why doesn't he take the money? What does it mean that he will just blow it anyway? Like it's almost like his arc in this movie is like self acceptance. Like I know the person I am. I know that I'm going to be a con man for life. And this is the this is it. Is am I missing something? Like what am I missing from his arc that I just don't understand? Yeah, I think. When you kind of posed this a little bit earlier in the conversation, I started thinking, wait a second, there isn't anything like in in terms of depth to these characters. Like what <laughs> you end up getting is kind of like what you're getting. Not saying it's like like surface level, but it's pretty simplistic with like the characters. You're like you just need to care about what they do from this story. It doesn't really have to 
be some big existential thing. Just like focus on the story, focus on like what's happening in front of you. So I didn't like have, I, I really didn't think about like his whole arc, but then the whole arc, it ends. Yeah. With him being like, Oh, I just wouldn't take the money this time. It's like, you wouldn't like, you're, you're going to end up with the money, right? Like the whole reason gonna, you did this, right? Yeah. You know? Like, and I know like Shaw like walks away too before they split the money. So it's like, Oh, they'll just like hide for like a day or two, then get the money. Right. Like that's how it's going to work. Yeah, sure. But it's like, why? I, I guess he's, to me, that's the kind of arc that I can see. He's, he's self-accepting. He's not trying to like constantly chase after the money. It's not really about that. It's about having the friends with the con, you know, yeah. having, having a group of people that you can really bond with. And it's such a surface <laughs> level arc where I'm like, am I missing something? Like someone needs to tell me, like, what am I missing in this movie? Is there like some other scene that ties into it? And then I'm thinking like, is it related to Loretta? Is it related to his relationship with women? Because he loses the money early on with the woman. And I'm like, I just don't really see what, what it's, what kind of connective tissue that I'm missing. And that just kind of left me with like, Oh, that was so fun. They got me, but like, huh, that interesting. Okay. It wasn't like a, oh man, that was a great like arc. And that was a cool lesson this character learned and emotional like change. It was just like, yeah, that was great. That was a fun time. We got conned. I got conned. They conned. It was a great time. And that's (laughs) kind of how you wrap up the film, which, you know, isn't a bad thing. It sounds like I'm slighting it, but it is interesting and it's that kind of film where you're like we don't really have time to go too deep into these characters this film is focused on being a film and and that's kind of what i want to get to when it comes to this film to kind of wrap it up and then one goofy question at the end i have for you but for me this film was so interesting especially after i saw it a second time that i wanted to like dig deep into i want to like determine why this film is so interesting why it feels so unique for our best pictures and I'm sure there's some other film out there that's not a best picture winner that came before this and it's something similar and and the way I'm describing this is something that's called reflective cinema or you could look at it and call it meta cinema and I really think the best terminology for it is retrospective filmmaking but I want to read just the definition of what reflective cinema is so a reflective film is a film that makes the audience aware of the filmmaking process Reflectivity is defined by such devices as looking into the camera, taking advantage of the two-dimensional screen, or simply making a film about making a film. In other words, a reflective film is a film that is self-aware. And that is the key words here, a film that is self-aware. And you might ask, like, John, I don't see Robert Redford turn to the camera. He's not telling me about the con. I don't see Paul Newman talking to the camera. There's not really fourth wall breaking here. But that's not what I'm kind of referring to. It's the writing. It's the direction. It's how they know exactly what to tell the audience, what not to tell the audience. It knows about how we've had, you know, 70 years of film history and beyond. And the audiences at this point in time have caught up. We're smarter now. We know a lot more. We're used to the stereotypes of motion pictures. We know what films are like. We know what rom-coms are like. We've kind of truly understood and established what film is at this point in time. And then here comes this film where it's like, you think you've seen this kind of movie. You think you know what's going to happen. And it's constantly throwing in twists and turns and, and all these different perspectives. So not only do you have that, which is kind of like the basis of the writing and constantly trying to trick the viewer, which to me is self-aware. It's being aware enough in filmmaking that you're able to do that 
And I think a good a modern example is someone like Ryan Johnson, who made Glass Onion and the Knives Out film and obviously The Last Jedi. But every one of his films is always about subverting everything you expect to happen to a character or a stereotype that you think is what's going to happen next is usually the opposite because he wants to be very subversive. And I feel like that is kind of what the film is kind of going for, where we're constantly changing or constantly trying to flip it on its head. So we have that aspect of it. But then at the same time, this is a very retrospective film where Hill is going back. He's trying to replicate this 30s period. He's trying to go back and look at it and say, like, how can we recreate this for the time? And he does that with obviously the costuming, the sets. And not only that, it's in the texture of the film. It's it's the entertainer. It's the music that got repopulated and reintroduced uh, to a new audience. So and of course, the editing techniques, the iris uh, transitions, the zooming into a circle and, and fading out to the next scene, all very old filmic techniques that we just don't really see anymore in this period of time in the 70s. So all this being said and rambly, I'm just curious of like your point of view. And the movie is fun. It's really interesting. But this is why I really like this movie is that it is smart. It is very fucking smart. It knows exactly what it's doing and it's recreation of the time period. And it knows exactly what the audience thinks it's going to do. So that being said, Ben, do you agree? Do you see that much of this? Is this like, am I over analyzing this or, or do you agree? No, I, I agree wholeheartedly with like what, what you're saying about it. I think that's what makes it so interesting and so fun is that audiences like to look back and they like to feel like they've been transported to a location, to a time period, and you feel transported within the four... Well, it's not literal four walls, but it feels like four walls within this movie. Uh, and it's it's engaging. You, you're so fascinated by how everything works, how the clothing and how, how the style is was in that time, or at least how they're trying to say this is what the style was like, what buildings looked like, what, how it felt to be in a car, you know, of that time period, how it felt to even look at the money at that time period and, and hold it. So it's, I, I appreciate a lot of the, and the details to it. And I think it, it does a really good job of what you're saying of this reflective cinema. Um, and it's definitely a part of like, you know, I, I saw you were on the notes that it's like meta cinema where we're part of this like meta era in filmmaking where this movie would fit kind of perfectly within that, you know, genre of like, let me transport you back. Let me give you a sense of what this is like. Let me like, sh like you know, show you how the world could be as it is now, but within this time period and this look rather than like the same restraints or stuff. Um, yeah. Absolutely. So I think it's, I think it's a very spot on observation of the movie. Yeah. And, and we started this whole conversation talking about duos and, this is totally a film that Tarantino loves. I don't know if that he said that out loud. I don't know if that's true, but I guarantee you this man loves this movie. <laughs> and there is definitely like relationships between these two men, Robert Redford and Paul Newman that we see in once upon a time in Hollywood where this like kind of like bro romance between these two men. And obviously that's very engrossed in like Hollywood history. And that is like this duo that has become synonymous, even though they've never really been in a film together, Leo and, and Brad Pitt, they've become synonymous together. And I just, I felt that kind of connection and that, that love. And I totally see that he kind of loved the bond between those two actors and kind of used that as kind of like a, a kind of branching off point for making that film. But all that being said, I think a great way to wrap up the sting is by asking 
a little lighthearted question. We talked a lot about film theory and, and the genres of filmmaking. But, Ben, I want to know if you think The Sting is a dad movie. And before you answer that, I want to describe the dad movie thing has become a f- like phenomenon over the past couple of years. The dad bod, the dad movie, the dad dad songs the dad Dad behavior like dad rock yeah there you go like there's been so many weird things in our culture american culture specifically that have brought this to light and i want to go off the urban dictionary definition of a dad movie which is the kinds of movies usually contain middle-aged dudes beating other dudes or a dude winning the love of their lives so that is a very like blunt and just (laughs) simple way of describing it but what, do you think this is a dad movie? Um, no, I don't think it is. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I, I that the term feels so like weird because, because it feels like you can say like almost like any, because the like movie a dad movie like when you know like you know, I feel like I'm trying to think of like a movie that wouldn't fit within that idea. Well, I, I was saying. I'm gonna say, no. gonna say no. I, I'm okay. sticking with no. What what what, what do you think? Because you, I think this question. is one thousand percent a dad movie. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so not only do we have these like very two iconic actors, which is already a dad thing. You see Robert Redford. I love Robert Redford. You gotta see all of Robert Redford's movies. Like that's such a dad thing to say. But are you not gonna say that when you know when you're older and you're like. You know, uh, I love Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt's the best. Yeah. You gotta see all his movies. Oh, yeah, you see Babylon. Gonna, Come on, it's great. Yeah, you know, Ben Affleck. You gotta see all Ben Affleck's movies. Yeah, come on, you gotta see the town. No, what? But I say that because we don't have like the sexy women, we don't have the guns, but we do have some guns. So we do have some shooting. So it's not like guns ablazing like you normally think of, you know, Schwarzenegger or Stallone. But we have definitely the money. We have very cool, suave dudes, and we got the, the cool fashion. We got the poker. You know, another very, very loved thing by dads. Poker yeah. games, card games, cons, you know. I, this is a very dad movie to me. That's all I'm saying. I, I, I can hear you on that. I, I just, man, it just feels like so many, so many things get boxed into that definition and, <laughs> and, that, and that idea of, like, a dad movie. <laughs> I bet that's so abstract to me. I can't wrap my head around it right now. <laughs> now you're going to have me pondering this the rest of the time of this recording. God damn it, it John. <laughs> I think to summarize it up, it, it is a movie that when you have a kid uh, and you're a dad yourself, you would want to sit down with your kid and be like, watch this. So is Star Wars see... a dad movie? So Star Wars, is that a dad movie? <laughs> well, now you're just talking about movies you love that you would want to show to well, your kids. I mean, isn't that what no, you're I, That's describing? what I'm describing, but I also... It has the other context of what I said, which is, you know, it's it's dudes being dudes, being cool, being suave, playing poker, being con is, men, is, getting is money. Is this the movie that you think of automatically when you when that comes up, though? Because no. we were saying before how, like, this movie, it's so, like, it's not talked about. And it's not for any other reason besides it's just not as good as its con- counterparts of Best Picture winners. I mean, this movie is literally sandwiched between Godfather 1 and Godfather 2. So it, it no one, when people think of like, oh, those two movies both winning Oscars, you just like don't even think about like there was a movie in between. I think it's like the unfortunate <laughs> history that this movie – but it was also very popular. I mean, it's this what, the second highest grossing movie of the year? So yeah. it like – 
it almost doesn't feel like that dad movie genre because it's so popular like it does feel like this movie was trying to be like kid friendly but also adults can go see it mm-hmm. yeah i think dad movie has become like I don't think you can have a modern film that is like a dad movie. I think it's become like a retro way of looking at films that dads nowadays love to just say like, oh, have you seen The Predator? Like, have you seen Predator? We got to go watch <laughs> Predator. See Schwarzenegger with his big guns and the handshake yeah. and the monster. Like, I think it's become like this retrospective way of looking at films. But I really just wanted to bring it out and bring it up because it's one of the first movies that has jumped out to me. Where it's like, this movie is just about having a fun time. You're sitting back. You're going to get duped. You're going to see a bunch of cool cons. You know, it's easy breezy. It's light. It's fun. And you go back and look at everything and like, maybe the French connection. Like, I'm not going to say like, oh, in the heat of the night, what a dad movie. Like, no, it's just so (laughs) serious and and strict. And even if you go farther back, like Lawrence of Arabia, it's like, yeah, you could maybe argue. But like, you're getting farther and farther back now. How about this one? bridge on the river Kwai. it's definitely a dad movie okay because right. i can tell you straight up my dad loves that movie so like definitely <laughs> a dad movie i mean the whole ending of that is so it's just i think that so, screams dad movie. i wonder if movies with great endings the correlation of dad movie and movies with like really suspenseful endings are there's a com you know I think so. I don't think that's a a crazy thing to throw out there. Because Ocean's Eleven, I remember Ocean's Eleven, that movie always comes to mind when I think of The Sting in terms of like, again, the crew together, dudes being dudes type of thing. Like that's definitely a dad movie where the big heist and suspense at the end. Yeah, absolutely. All that being said, (laughs) I think we had a great conversation about The Sting. I think it was a fun ride to kind of break it down like the film breaks it down for us. And... Is there any final kind of last little snippets or fun things that you want to talk about this thing before we move on to this year's Academy Awards? No, I, I pretty much feel good about this movie. I, you know, there's a lot of, you know, stuff about like Newman and Redford and, you know, and their own history. But this movie like doesn't feel like the the movie, you know, for their careers. It's like a big part of their careers. Definitely. It's a notable movie because it was so big. But this doesn't feel like the movie that um everyone should remember them for um and they get their dues later on with the oscars so they definitely you know do win um so we're going to get into that so why don't we jump into the 46th academy awards this program is brought to you in living color on nbc the opening and some audio portions were pre-recorded Tonight, live, the 46th Annual Academy Award Presentation. This is the Music Center in Los Angeles, California, where these crowds have been gathering since dawn today, and where the excitement has been building up to this climactic moment, the arrival of Hollywood's most glamorous stars for tonight's ceremony. The 46th Academy Awards were held on April 2nd, 1974 at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion. The Oscars were hosted by John Huston, Diana Ross, Burt Reynolds, and David Niven. The award ceremony is perhaps best remembered as the ceremony in which a streaker ran across the stage naked while flashing a peace sign with his hand. In response, host David Niven jokingly quipped, 
Isn't it fascinating to think that probably the only laugh that man will ever get in his life is by stripping off and showing his shortcomings? So, Ben, we have our first streaker. Really like the weirdest kind of outside interruption that we've probably seen yet that's not come from another nominee or some other person in the award show. So yeah. what how, what do we take of this? Is this like a modern rights of uh, the Oscars? I feel like it is. It's such a random moment because they just the streaker runs by and it's just like you know peace and like that's it. Like there's not really much fallout yeah. from it. Like um, so it's it's just a funny moment. It's a lighthearted moment within the Oscar history. Yeah, it's a goofy little moment, and I saw something funny when I watched the YouTube clip of it, and how excited and and hysterical people were. Uh, because I guess maybe some people thought it wasn't a joke. Maybe some people thought it was a part yeah. of the whole thing. And this is like the 70s. We're getting free love, hippie stuff going on. So Well, it's also like I think at that point, David Niven said, was like sort of introducing somebody to come out. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, like that guy comes like as he like the not like he's introducing, but he's saying like and this person. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> this guy comes out running naked. You're right. like, OK, that's a little funny. So um, but like good. The goodbye the TV crew to not show it, although I would say the broadcast crew had – there's a lot of technical difficulties. There's a lot of, like, weird – like, they weren't, like, able to get some people, like, into some of the boxes as, as they were reading nominees. They, like – especially for Best Director, like, they did not know that they first had George Lucas and they kept moving the camera. They're like, that's not George Lucas. No way. <laughs> what are you doing? Well, at that time, not many people knew who he was. Yeah. He was not very well known. Um yeah, so let's jump into the 46th Academy Awards, and let's start with the Irving G. Thalberg Award that was awarded to Lawrence Weingarten that year. Um, so first, just about Weingarten, because it's fascinating. So he won Best Picture for The Broadway Melody, our second episode, the second movie to win Best Picture, and it was more notably co-produced by Irving G. Thalberg, which the award was named after. So it's like these two guys... These two like big producer pioneers. Uh, Weingarten is best known for working for MGM and producing some of their most prestigious films, such as Adam's Rib, I'll Cry Tomorrow, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. And what made this so special during the ceremony was that Catherine Hepburn made her first and only appearance at the ceremony to present the award. Um, whenever she had one, uh, she's always had either somebody else or you know, like a presenter or another person associated with the movie to accept it. Um, and she even said when she took the stage, when she got this huge standing ovation, like everyone was like, oh my God, it's Catherine Hepburn, like true like Hollywood royalty for that era. Uh, she said, I'm living proof that a person can wait 41 years to be unselfish, which is, you know, a really great moment. But I don't know if you watched like the full clip. She was like not prepared, I think, at all to like talk in front of all these people. So I don't know if she like has like a public speaking like issue but she was bizarre when she was up there talking i don't even i she might have been on something honestly like or drunk but that's not like what you expect from like it felt more like pill i don't know don't want to make an accusation against our queen miss hepburn but you're right it was so awkward there was like long pauses of like i don't know what to say or do like why am i here (laughs) yeah so maybe it is a public speaking thing. Maybe it's I didn't want to be here. Maybe she got paid to attend the Oscars this year, and she was like, eh, I'll do it for a little check, a buck. It's finally worth it for me now. 
it's it's hard it's very weird i tried to like figure out what was up with that and i i didn't it was just honoring and celebrating her so there really wasn't that much else <laughs> to say beyond that it was just a very awkward moment that should have been a special like big speech that you'd expect but it wasn't yeah but it was like this really nice moment to honor the you know an original like great producer a pioneer of the industry to talk about producers and how important they are to the movie um and to have this really cool connection to to irving thalberg himself and to the best picture winners what we've been talking about is to have this guy 45 years later you know after the oscars are first created he's getting you know not you know he won before he's getting another recognition another like hey like you really are important to everything that's going on so you know getting Catherine hepburn lawrence weingarten who i know like isn't like a big sexy name but very important to the industry we get those to as part of the ceremony but john what's another honorary award that was given out that year so we also have an honorary academy award presented to groucho marx for his contributions to cinema groucho marx was an american comedian actor writer and singer who performed in film television radio stage and all the way back to vaudeville he is generally considered to have been a master of quick wit and one of america's greatest comedians I would say he's one of like the funniest comedians of all time. I think that is a very fair assessment and and one of the best insulters. He was so good at like throwing out quick witty insults, whether it was on late night talk shows or his scripted content. And personally, I love the Marx Brothers. That was like a huge part of me growing up. I remember having the Turner Classic Movie Channel on where they would have Marx Brothers shorts uh, on the weekends and they would also have a lot of the Three Stooges. So those two, similar in a lot of ways, I really fell in love with Groucho Marx because of that. I mean, what what an iconic figure. Like, it's hard not to think of that man with a big cigar with his big, thick, puffy mustache. Just what a legend. And it's so nice that they got to bring him out here because he doesn't really fit in the Academy history he doesn't really fit under this kind of genre that they usually celebrate it's very few comedies as we've established so to bring out this comedy legend he's the last of of the trio really at this time so it's really touching to see him say like you know i wish my brothers were here i wish my my partners were here and it's sad just to see him in the way he is you know it's funny i'll go on this little tangent for a minute doing this podcast has been really interesting because it has really showed me life and that seems so generic but seeing people from early on in their career starting out in the late 20s and then progressing further and further we've like in real time watched people die and that sounds so dark and depressing (laughs) but it's true and we've seen people come out here they're not playing characters they're they are themselves they're the actors and progressively for people that have continued to attend the oscars and be nominated or win we slowly see them age and it's made me think a lot about age the way your body changes the way your face changes because that's so important as an actor that that that's your real estate that's what you see on the camera and it is beautiful and sad at the same time i think to summarize it and i bring it up because groucho marx is very small he's skinny he doesn't have like the the agility that his character always would have and, and this kind of motion he's like a frail frag, fragile old man but it's beautiful because yeah. it's like we got to see him throughout his career. We got to see him fully live his life. And that's beautiful and touching in a way, but also sad because it's like, oh, this is not the person we remember. 
Yeah, and Jack Lemon is the one to present the award and bring him out. And Jack Lemon, you know, looks aged, very aged himself. He's an yeah. older man at this point, and and we've had him around for you know twenty years of about you know rounding up uh, that he's been in the realm of our podcast that he's been brought up. Um, and so it's a very sweet and endearing moment. I mean, yeah, Groucho Marx he even has hearing aids in, so it's just like it's this sweet old man that he's bringing out, and he's so like shocked i think that he's very was very overwhelmed by the moment um and, and even during the presentation it wasn't even just like for groucho marx it was like for the marx brothers yeah. but groucho was the only one around uh so i think like that moment was very overwhelming for him so we get groucho marx at this ceremony and then this another appearance that was like oh my god like to have this person alone at the oscars would have been enough and that was alfred hitchcock they brought out Alfred Hitchcock to present the Gene Herschel Humanitarian Award, and that was to Lou Wasserman. Wasserman was just a big studio exec. He was uh, president uh, of the company that took over Universal Pictures. So, you know, just a big, like, studio guy, and, you know, his contributions uh, outside of the film world was why he was getting the Humanitarian Award. But you're getting Alfred Hitchcock as well, <laughs> like, in the ceremony. So you have Hitchcock, Groucho Marx, you have... Wine Garden represent the, uh, the this old time producers. It's and, and Hepburn. It's 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 pretty wild. It's pretty wild to have all of, you know this like power, like right there and like to show how powerful the movie industry has been. Best film editing went to William H. Reynolds for The Sting. Reynolds was nominated for the Academy Award for best film editing seven times and won for The Sound of Music and this year for The Sting. He received the American Cinema Editor's Career Achievement Award in 1991, and in 2012, the Motion Picture Editors Guild published a list of the best edited films of all time. And two films edited by Reynolds appeared on that list, and The Godfather was ranked 6th, and The Sound of Music was 64th. So Ben, here's our film. We talked about how quick and kind of fun the editing is the throwback to the 30s the irish I, irish the irish zoom <laughs> that we have there is an irish man but the irish, yeah, irish <laughs> the irish the iris <laughs> zooms and the throwback to the 30s is fun and it feels fresh again in a weird way because it's 40 years later maybe even beyond 50 years later if you look back in early film so what do you think about the editing and william h reynolds well first i Again, putting on my tinfoil hat of Reynolds was not winning the year before for The Godfather, but he wins for this year. So just a little interesting back-to-back years. But as I said the, with The Sting, it's so it's paced so well that and it's all due to the editing and how they balance out the movie, all the storylines, the shot choices that add to this building of tension throughout. So it's a great you know job by Reynolds, and I I think it's it's brilliant. Like I definitely think it deserves to win, but. I did want to pose one interesting film that is nominated here that I don't know is is an is a stylistic in terms of editing jobs and like what it does, but it does it very well. And that's The Exorcist. Uh, I think one of the haunting things about The Exorcist that people pick up on are the subliminal images of Pazuzu sprinkled throughout the <laughs> so movie. So creepy and like it's so creepy, but isn't it very effective? Yeah, it's extremely effective. And I'm glad you and said it, his name because I keep wanting yeah. to say Ponzu every time I say it. And that's, yeah, that's not... Pazuzu. <laughs> I love Pazuzu. I'm a big fan of Pazuzu. So um, can I get you an idol, like a 6-inch or 12-inch statue of him? Or would that be going too far? 
Sure, why not? <laughs> you know, I don't believe in, and I'm not, you know, Catholic, so it's not gonna. I'm not gonna oh, so you're just free, devil. free of it. So I'm free. Yeah. it's not real. None of that was real. It's all just a movie, Is right? Is there a Jewish exorcism film? Because that's something I need to see. <laughs> <laughs> that seems like something we should. Because <laughs> if that exorcist. has not been done, oh, I, we need to do it. I don't know how Adam Sandler hasn't gone down that route yet. There, there has to. <laughs> <laughs> there has to. That would be hilarious. But yeah, just wanted to pose that because another good editing job from that year, but uh, not going to take away from the sting. Moving on to best cinematography, that went to Cries and Whispers to Sven Nyquist. This is Nyquist's first of two Academy Awards. Uh, he would go on to win best cinematography for Fanny and Alexander from 82, which was another Ingmar Bergman film, and it was nominated another time for The Unbearable Lightning of Being from 1988. Uh, John... Uh, Sting didn't win for best cinematography. Um, do you think it deserved to win, or was it too simplistic for it to, you know, for us to make a case that should have won? No, I think it's it is some great cinematography. I think it blends the new '70s styles. We're getting a lot more like zooms, and we're mixing that with all the '30s aesthetic and the the kind of wide shots, some some basic kind of tripod tracking shots, like some stuff that you would see back in the silent film era but then updated and presented to us. So it is very cool. We also have The Exorcist again listed here, which is just stunning. I mean, some of the imagery in that, and and what perfect timing we're getting the 4K. Literally in September, I think it's finally coming out. A 4K restoration of that film is going to look insane. And then you even have The Way We Were, which is another Robert Redford starring picture as well. So I got to see Cries and Whispers, but what do you think? Do you think The Sting should have won? I think the sting was kind of like I, when I was watching, I was like trying to look for like the shot, like what, like what makes this movie like, like in terms of a visual, like what's the one frame and it doesn't really stick out. Like with the exorcist and that one shot of Max von Sydow, a uh, character in the, uh, by the lamppost light, there, yeah. like that's an iconic, you know, image from the movie. So I like, even like the exorcist I might put over in terms of like cinematography. I would, but. I would throw out three images from this movie then. Mm-hmm. You have, there's like a really amazing, I don't know which game it is. There's an amazing shot of Paul Newman's beautiful blue eyes with like cards right in front of his face. And it's like super close to the lens. So there's an okay. sh- iconic shot like that. There's not really like an iconic shot of the two of them really. And you can, you know that because when you look at the posters, the marketing advertisements for this film, it's, it's made up art. It's art very much like the title cards. So though those, that is the one shot. Another shot could be the the door. There's like a peephole, and they're like peeping through that hole um, to look yeah. if the the cops, are, I think, are on the other side. So that's like a really cool like shot, a still that's kind of pretty iconic from the Sting. And what was the last one? Something with Robert Redford. Oh, I'm gonna have to just say Robert Redford's moment and reaction to when Loretta gets shot in the face, <laughs> and he turns around with his eyes wide open, wearing a goofy trench coat, and just like, oh, what? Yeah, but is that Oscar worthy? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Moving on to best art direction, went to Henry Bumstead, set decoration by James W. Payne, and that is of course for The Sting. This is Bumstead's second Academy Award win, and he previously won in the same category for To Kill a Mockingbird in 1963. This is Payne's first and only Academy Award out of three total nominations. So, Ben, 
beautiful art direction. I think it's easy to say this is worthy. Yeah, absolutely. Like we, you know, that was the big thing that stood out to us was like how stylized this movie was, how lived in, but also not lived in. It all felt it was it was very well done, and that leads perfectly, I think, into the next category, which is best costume design. And that one went to Edith Head for The Sting. Is Edith Head eighth Academy Award and final win in the best costume design category? She said when she won the award, just imagine dressing the two handsomest men in the world and then getting this holding up her Oscar. Head's eight wins in the best costume design category is the most within it, and it's the most wins by a woman. Uh, the next closest within the best costume design category is Irene Sharaf with five. So Head. Way ahead of, <laughs> literally, way ahead of everybody within that field. Any thoughts on the costumes? Do you have a favorite suit from the movie? Yeah, it's it's interesting. That is a great question. I, I wasn't expecting you to throw that at me. I would have to say, because I didn't mention it during our conversation, the montage, which I love a good getting ready, uh, getting a haircut <laughs> montage, getting like an oh, upgrade yeah. montage. It's such a great the montage nose. in we this didn't really movie. Talk about the nose no, we flick. didn't do the cool nose flick. The montage of them getting Robert Redford to look up to snuff, to look like he's a rich man, that he's, uh, you know, a good assistant to co-lead Paul Newman here. But I would have to go with that suit that he has on, that striped kind of like red pinstripe suit. But something I wanted to talk about with Edith Head, which was really interesting. So at this point, you said it's her last, right? I think she would only die seven years later, I believe. And she's getting older in her career and I found a little like tidbit about this movie, and I'll read it here. A quote from uh, World of Wonder, which says, Head's career was not without controversy. After winning that Academy Award for The Sting, she was sued by the illustrator who really designed Robert and Newman's clothing. I found it really interesting that we have someone who's been this iconic Oscar winner. She's one of the most celebrated iconic Oscar winner. And there is kind of like this controversy about calling her win without acknowledging this illustrator is interesting. It's something that we don't talk about too often where people in departments become figureheads. They become like an icon. They become something that you grab to pull onto a film to sell itself, you know? And even though she's on the back end of film, not something you think about like a cinematographer, an editor, or director, a crucial aspect of filmmaking is costume design. So Ben, do you have any thoughts about this? Is the controversy something that we should be heavily considered or is that just a part of the filmmaking process you know you have a team of illustrators you provide them maybe context you provide them ideas of what you're thinking maybe reference images true images or is there a true yeah. case here that she's not crediting her team enough i think it's part of the industry in, in an unfortunate way and like one thing that like comes to mind like we just gave or the academy gave ruth carter two oscars for black panther for, the, for the, the two Black Panther movies, and those are based off of comic books. Like, yeah, it's tweaked and it, it's made for a movie, but it's still based off of existing artwork that she didn't necessarily draw, but she still won an Oscar for it. So it's like, it, it's that's a whole like can of worms that like if you want to give credit to the original artist, you have to like go really far back. You have to be really specific with so many things because then storyboards shouldn't that be the person who wins cinematography yeah. like you know if you're if no, you're making the storyboard you're yeah. saying this how the shot should be constructed and they do it exactly like that but the person who you know the person who drew it didn't necessarily shoot themselves so it's a whole can of worms it's an interesting thought but uh i don't think it really holds much validity i don't think it really should damage head's career in any way 
Best foreign language film went to France for Day for Night. Best sound went to The Exorcist to Robert Knudsen and Chris Newman. This is Knudsen's second consecutive Oscar in the best sound category after he won the previous year for Cabaret. And he would go on to win a third Oscar for E.T. the Extraterrestrial in 1982. And then this is Newman's first of three Academy Awards for Best Sound. And he would go on to win for the Best Picture winners Amadeus in 84 and The English Patient in 1996. So one of the things, and I think I brought this up when we did our episode on All the King's Men. So we have to go really far far back. We're going back into the 40s. And the reason why I want to bring this up is that movie had Mercedes McCambridge, who won a Best Supporting Actress Oscar for her role in All the King's Men. She also was the voice of Pazuzu. And I think I brought that up, this whole story. So she is the voice for Pazuzu. And to sound like as disturbing as that voice was, McCambridge swallowed raw eggs, chain smoked, drank whiskey to make her voice harsh. And, and, I, and I bring that up for the sound you know, part of it because it's like that had to be very specific to what they did. You know, they talk about how uh, the neck twisting was just like a wallet being like crushed in somebody's hand. So it's like it, the sound design of that movie is so advanced and has to be to create these like otherworldly effects that are going on. And, it, and it's really impressive. It's like what makes The Exorcist like really pop out at this time because it's very advanced. You're like not ex- anticipating them to go this far with some of the stuff they do, especially within this technical category within sound. So like, what do you think? Like, do you felt that sound in that movie was so crucial to like making you as horrified and on edge as you were? Yes. It's terrifying. It's so creepy. I mean <laughs> that it's pushing the horror genre certainly forward. I think you could maybe like accredit a lot of Japanese horror, some foreign horror that kind of, helped push us further along in America. I think The Exorcist comes later than probably some crazy Japanese horror films you could point out. But, man, what incredible product! I mean, the way that that sound design is built and you just hear some words and sometimes it's like utter muttering and then you hear, like, the banging and all the noise within the film itself, not just, like, her voice or the characters, but all the sound effects, the glass breaking like the bed shaking like everything in that movie is so anxiety inducing because of yeah. the sound really it's totally totally worthy yeah that uh, there's a lot of like technical categories that like you could easily say the exorcist should should have won because it's so like at a it's so advanced for that time that it, it and it still like stands true um so i really just like enjoy that like little background about how they created the character and it's just something I want to keep in mind for another category when we get there. <laughs> so, John, you take it away. Best song went to The Way We Were from The Way We Were. Music by Marvin Hamlish. Lyrics by Alan and Marilyn Bergman. This is Hamlish's first of three Academy Awards of the evening and Bergman's second of three career Oscars. As the couple previously won for The Windmills of Your Mind from The Thomas Crown Affair from 1968. I don't think there's any better time to listen to The Way We Were from The Way We Were. What's too painful to remember We simply choose to forget So it's the laughter We will remember 
best scoring original song score and adaptation or scoring adaptation. What is that category <laughs> name? Went to the sting adapted by Marvin Hamlish. So this is a Hamlish's second Oscar of the evening. Uh, so the soundtrack, it, it was produced by Gil Rodden, but it, it, what makes it so interesting and like, yeah, Hamlish is getting like all this recognition, but it's really a lot of Scott Joplin ragtime music, like the entertainer being used so heavily and influencing the rest of the, this like tone that the music creates, you know, it's adapted by Hamlish, Hamlish, you know, took inspiration and they used, you know, Joplin's like actual tunes, but it's still adapted for the score. So I, it would have been interesting if like Scott Joplin could have been also nominated and won an Oscar for this because it was based off of his work. Um, but that's not really how it, it does roll for the Oscars. So it, but it's very iconic music. And it's also, I think what throws you off the first time watching it, because you're like, what is this movie? Like, this is so goofy. Like why this movie won best picture, but it's using like this goofy ragtime kind of style of music. Like what is going on? I want to ask you, like, what does the entertainer remind you of? Do 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 like what what is, when you first hear that the movie's opening like what does that remind you of? I'm not saying something specifically. I'm just asking yeah. you like it, what does it remind? It makes you me of? think. It makes me think of like a carnival like stage show type of thing. Like come on up, like everyone gather around, gather around, and just hearing that. Yeah. yeah. No, I wow, totally. What get do you that. think? I totally get that. I get ragtime. I think of like projecting a silent film and a crowd watching it. But I also th- always think of that like iconic kind of cowboy scene where you're just hearing someone play it on the piano in the saloon and the saloon doors yeah. open and then the piano just ding like stops and everyone turns <laughs> and they look to see who walked in the saloon. Just that retro ragtime feeling. Definitely. Yeah. You probably would have loved this song in Nightmare Alley. <laughs> You could see it like in a really like disturbing scene. They just play this like do 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 do. Yeah, I mean, I'm, a horror movie has Del to Toro. have used this before because if you oh, slow yeah. this down, so creepy. Do 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 do. I am. It's creepy. You know, you can see that in a trailer. Oh no! I am. Best original dramatic score went to Marvin Hamlish for The Way We Were. In addition to winning an Oscar for The Sting, Hamlish won two more Oscars that year for original scorn for Best Song, shared with lyricists Marlon and Alan Bergman for The Way We Were, making him the first person in history to win three Academy Awards in one night, and he is the only person to win three Oscars in one year without winning Best Picture. He's one of ten people to win three or more Oscars in one night, and the only one other than a director or screenwriter to do so. Ben, let's hear about some others that may be on that list. Yeah, so it's a very interesting list. So actually, just recently, Daniel Kwan and Daniel Scheinert, the Daniels, won three Oscars for Everything Everywhere All at Once for Picture, Director, and Screenplay. Uh, Peter Jackson winning for Best Picture, Director, Adapted Screenplay for Return of the King. Uh, Alejandro Nieritu winning Picture, Director, Screenplay for Birdman. Um, Francis Ford Coppola for Godfather Part 2, again, getting picture director and screenplay. Joel and Ethan Cohen for No Country for Old Men, which, John, I bet you can guess it, picture director and screenplay. Then you also have James Cameron winning for Titanic, but he didn't win a screenplay. He won a Best Editing with his picture and director. 
Then you have James L. Brooks for Terms of Endearment, which we will get to that movie. So that one, Best Picture, Director, and Screenplay. And then we have our boy Bong Joon-ho for Parasite, which again, John, you guessed it, Picture, Director, Screenplay. And then Walt Disney won four Academy Awards for the short film categories in, at the 26 Oscars in 53. Um, so not necessarily for the same film, but just he had his hand in all of them. But then we all know that did he really make all those movies or just uh, all these other animators made the movies, but he gets to slap his name on it. So it's very unfortunate. But Hamlish gets to be part of this pantheon of filmmakers, mostly great directors, who all won three Oscars in one evening. Um, so it's a pretty interesting list uh, to be a part of. Best animated short subject went to Frank Film, to Frank Morris. Best live action short subject went to Alan Miller and William Furtick for The Bolero. Best documentary short subject went to Princeton, A Search for Answers to Julian Cranin and DeWitt L. Sage Jr. Best documentary feature went to Keith Merle for The Great American Cowboy. Best screenplay based on material from another medium went to The Exorcist to William Peter Blady based on his novel of the same name. This is Blady's first and only Academy Award win a nomination. Um, and he, I think I counted right, he's one of 15 people to win adapted screenplay that is also based on, based on the material that they wrote themselves. So quick little just overview. First movie to do that was Pygmalion. George Bernard Shaw helped with the screenplay. It was based on his play. And we jump all the way to our favorite, one of our favorite movies, Marty. Patty Chayefsky wrote the television play and the movie. Judgment at Nuremberg. Abby Mann did both the television play and the movie. Then we jump to another Best Picture winner, Man for All Seasons, Robert Bolt. Uh, Lion in Winter, James Goldman did the play. The Godfather, which Mario Puzo, it's based off his novel. And as well as the sequel part, The Godfather Part 2. So it's interesting that he's, I think it's the only time that a source material is winning multiple adapted screenplay awards for you know two movies, which is not common at all. Yeah, The Exorcist for Blady uh, on Golden Pond. It's an Ernest Thompson play that he also wrote the movie. Amadeus, which we will get to as well. Peter Schaefer wrote the play and the film. Uh, Dangerous Liaisons, uh, Christopher Hampton, um, who we will see again in, in a few movies. Uh, Driving Miss Daisy, uh, Dances with Wolves, another Best Picture winner. Cider House Rules, John Irving. And then the most recent one that did this feat, uh, Christopher Hampton shows up here for The Father, but the play was written by Florian Zeller and the screenplay was co-written by them. So... It's really interesting. It's an interesting list that, you know, and I guess maybe it's probably not that common where m movies are being based off of something that's also written by the same person, but it's pretty cool to get that award for your work for just as the novel play, stage, you know, television play, and the film itself. Best story and screenplay based on factual material or material not previously produced or published went to David S. Ward for The Sting. In late 1974, a controversy erupted over Ward's screenplay for The Sting. As reported in DV on the 11th of October in 1974, David W. Maurer, then a professor emeritus at the University of Louisville, filed a complaint that his 1940 book, The Big Con, revised and reprinted in 1974 under the title The American Confidence Man, and as noted above, excerpt in the film's souvenir booklet, had provided in substantial part a basis for Ward's screenplay for The Sting. 
As noted in many new items and feature articles from the late 1970s through the early 80s, Universal made a financial settlement with Marr in the amount of $350,000. However, when the matter was reviewed by a panel of writers organized by the writers' branch of the Academy, the panel concluded that Ward did not plagiarize from Marr's work, thus the screenwriter's credit and ultimately his Academy Award would stand. According to a DV article from the 1st of February 1978, the WGA announced that if Ward were to be sued by Universal's insurer, Pacific Indemnity, for recovery of the money that the company paid in the settlement, the WGA would take an omnitious position and intervene in the case. However, it has not been determined that the Pacific Indemnity ever tried to recoup the money from Ward. So a little controversy here, uh, another one, I, that's why I wanted to mention Edith Head and that whole category, because then we have this pop up again where it's another fight to, for credit here. You know, as film has become larger and larger and all these people, they want a buck. They want a little little moolah for themselves too. So Ben, what do you think of not only the writing by David S. Ward that we praise and I loved so much for how subversive and entertaining it was uh not only just the writing but what did you think of this little controversy here yeah it's it definitely seems a little suspicious but you know some things happen um so I, you know it's hard to really like talk about i think of maybe not getting the full picture of it but the screenplay itself is, is pretty good it's solid there's not i wouldn't say there's any like big flaw with it it's it balances a lot of different storylines it and it has some really smart writing and, and smart uh, twists and turns to it that makes sense. And they plant these little things throughout that helps the story get along. And, and the, the dialogue is quick and snappy. Um, so definitely, definitely a fan of it. I think it does deserve for this win. Moving on to Best Supporting Actress, that went to Tatum O'Neill for Paper Moon as Addie Loggins. Tatum O'Neill was 10 years old uh, when she won the Oscar, which made her the youngest person ever to win and remains the youngest still to this day. At the suggestion of Polly Platt, uh, Peter, Do- Peter Bogdanovich, the director of Paper Moon, approached eight-year-old at, at the time 8-year-old Ta- Tatum O'Neill to audition for the role, although uh, she had no acting experiences. Bogdanovich had worked with Tatum's father, Ryan O'Neill, on What's Up Doc and decided to cast him as the lead along with Tatum. Uh, as the co-lead supporting actress. Um, John, I know you didn't get to watch Paper Moon. I love the movie, and I think Tatum O'Neill steals the show. She is, like, you you would think, like, oh, like, this little girl won because she was probably just, like, cute and, you know, just some, like, kid actor. Like, like, no, she's, like, like, really good acting in this movie and, like, holds a lot of emotions, is quick, fast, like, just her reaction time is perfect, and... I thought she really held the movie and really made it as special as it was. And I was a big fan of, of the movie coming out of it. Uh, I didn't think like I'd be that floored by a child performer, but she was truly, truly great in this performance. Um, so I just wanted to put that out there uh, that I love the performance, but also this category this year is fascinating because of how young it is. Um, so there's one nominee, Sylvia Sidney, for Summer Wishes, Winter Dreams. Um, she's fairly older than everybody else, but you also have Linda Blair here, who played Ray McNeil in The Exorcist. Candy Clark from American Graffiti. She's a young actress at the time. And then Madeline Kahn, who was also in Paper Moon. She's 
you know, probably in her twenties at this time. So it's like this young, you know, this young group of act of actresses that are there, and it's like it's kind of cool to see that, you know, to see that there is like this age developing that I know today the Oscars try to have, but at this time for one year they had so many young young stars new people to show and i also want to bring up with the linda blair aspect because you know does she win or does she get recognized because she was good or is there so so much great special effects mercedes mccambridge's voice is pazuzu helping with that like how much can we really give linda blair credit it's just a very iconic like look for a character but i don't know if like she's the focal point or maybe i'm not giving her enough credit uh as being possessed i mean it's a wonderful perform- performance based on her movement obviously her expressions yes a lot of it comes from the sound design a lot of it comes from the voice but still a lot of credit to her and i god i can't even imagine what her body went through having to be jerked around like that and i know it wasn't oh she got hurt. yeah it wasn't hurt. just her you know, all the times it was definitely used stunt doubles and dolls probably to, to recreate some of the tossing around and stuff. But still, you can tell that she is being whipped around viciously. And we, yeah. we saw what freaking did for that car chase. Now, what did he oh, do to her during those insane moments? Like, there's a lot that I was reading about. And too bad the Exorcist didn't win so we could talk about it more. But that movie uh, went two and a half million dollars over budget because of so many delays of weird stuff that happened of like people's like relatives like dying, you know, uh, fires in the set burning. But the only room that survived was like Reagan's room on this like set they built. So just like super bizarre things that happen and one uh, and people getting hurt, which happened to Linda Blair, which happened uh, to Ellen Burstein as well. Like, they both got, like, some major injuries because of these, like, stunts that were happening. So, Friedkin, again, just being fucking wild, I'm sure, on these sets. I'll say... A genius, yeah, but a absolute madman. madman, but a genius. I'll say it now. We gotta do a, a Halloween special episode about just the series of films of The Exorcist, but talk a lot about the original and, and the history because i know we, we you have a lot now in your mind and i was i just wa- finished watching it today just to get a refresher so i'm primed for that combo oh are you, are you ready for my like vocal essay on why the exorcist and hereditary are companion pieces because we can <laughs> yes, totally let's do, do that, that. <laughs> hell yeah and with the new exorcist coming Perfect. out which yeah. the trailer looked fucking crazy. yeah very <laughs> disturbing does it look good very disturbing uh, but it definitely looks disturbing. Very disturbing. <laughs> Best supporting actor went to John Houseman for the paper chase as Professor Charles W. Kingsfield Jr. With Tatum O'Neill being 10 years old and John Houseman being 71 years old, this is the biggest age gap ever for two acting wins. Really, really insane. I think we, should, we had to point that out. Absolutely yeah. wild. I love Jack Guilford and Save the Tiger as Phil. He's a really subdued performance. I, I really love a guy who's just like on the verge of a midlife crisis and everything's falling apart. And also Jason Miller from The Exorcist as Damien Carras is is uh, pretty wonderful. I mean, come on. Like yeah. everyone in that movie, all their performances are, are phenomenal. Yeah, I'm surprised like he didn't win you know because he was like that effective but i'm also surprised paul newman not here for 
the Sting. The Sting got like so many nominations, but to n- kind of not get a supporting, or even for Robert Shaw, like you know, it, it's it's kind of, it's a little suspicious. But I guess because it's such a big yeah. cast that cancel each other out. But um, fascinating. Moving on to Best Actress went to Glenda Jackson for A Touch of Class as Vicky Alicio. This is Jackson's second Academy Award for Best Actress. She previously won for her role in Woman in Love in 1970 and and winning again here for Touch of Class 73. And she was also nominated again for Hedda in 1995. And on another note, uh, Glenda Jackson's final performance was actually being released this year in The Great Escaper um, as she had just passed this past June. John, I know you didn't get to see a touch of class. Um, I watched it. It's not like this great movie, but she's like pretty good. Like, like she's like quick. She's snappy. She has this you know sexy energy to her. Um, and you know the movie is a lot about sex, but like she has this like just really commanding energy that is it's fun. It's like it's very engaging, and and even though the movie's kind of quirky and and it's not. I don't think it really holds up like tremendously as like a movie to like look back on but she's very effective in the role so it's interesting that she does win um but i guess maybe the competition was kind of weak and this movie was beloved by so many people so um really good stuff by glenda jackson i will say best actor went to jack lemon for save the tiger as harry stoner this is Lemon's fifth nomination and second Academy Award win, and he would go on to be nominated another three times. He previously won Best Supporting Actor in Mr. Roberts from 1955, and he received nomination in comedies like Some Like It Hot in 1959, and in 1960 for The Apartment, and the dramas Day of Wine and Roses from 1962, The China Syndrome from 1979, Tribute from 1980, and Missing from 1982. Jack Lemmon was a versatile and beloved performer, celebrated as a, a virtuoso in both comedy and drama acting. Sometimes referred to as America's Everyman, Lemmon's versatility as an actor helped the audience more closely identify and relate to him. He was always able to elicit a laugh or a sympathy from his viewers, and his charismatic presence always shined on the big screen. He often portrayed the essence of an inspiring man and established a lasting impression on the film industry. So not only is this an absolutely stacked category with Robert Redford, obviously from The Sting as Johnny Hooker, and Al Pacino from Serpico, Jack Nicholson from The Last Detail, and Marlon Brando from Last Tango in Paris. Absolutely stacked, iconic category here. I totally think Jack Lemmon is absolutely worthy. We talked a little bit because we both got a chance to watch Save the Tiger, and he gives a wonderful, depressing but beautiful performance in this movie. It is so sweet. It's a day in the life of this man who's about to lose his goddamn mind and possibly his business. And I just, it it was a really touching performance because it really does show his characteristics perfectly. He's able to balance this really dark moments, but also have this like inspiring spirit to him. A man who just loves baseball, who has this like childlike essence to him, but he's being drowned to death by (laughs) the corporate America really in, in the 1970s. It's a super interesting film. If you want to like look into Los Angeles in 1973, I think it like perfectly represents the city in a very authentic, real way. And I really enjoyed it. And I think it's a total worthy performance, but Ben, what did you think about this stacked year? 
it's a crazy stacking year. And, you know, I even think like a Ryan O'Neill could have been put in, you know, from paper moon. Um, you know, even like, you know, Glenda Jackson got for a touch of class, but like George Seagal, who was the, her co-lead in that movie could have also have been put here. And I, and I don't think I would have had too many issues with that. Uh, I love Jack Lemmon's performance though. I was very, I was like excited to watch this. I was like, wow, like how does Jack Lemmon, like, how does he pull it off with all these other, you know, the stack category, everybody wins an Oscar eventually within this category. I mean, Redford doesn't win it as an actor, but they all do eventually get their statues. But Lemon, like this performance was so like raw and it was, it was depressing. Like you texted, like that movie was extremely depressing, but I really enjoy the performance and the depth that he goes into with it. Um, so it, it's, it's really strong. It's a really, really good performance. Um, so definitely yeah, worthy, so well written in my opinion. and there's also a bunch of non nominees here not nominated uh, actors here for like Martin Sheen from Terrence Malick's Badlands and a wonderful performance really early kind of portrayal of Martin Sheen and it's a really really interesting character and a beautiful film obviously you have Martin Scorsese's Mean Streets starring Harvey Keitel. I mean, God, what an amazing performance. The fact that's not nominated really shows how stacked the year is. That is just a wonderful performance and an introduction to to Harvey Keitel to the world. Moving on to Best Director, and the Oscar went to George Roy Hill for The Sting. This is Hill's only Academy Award win in his career, but he had been previously nominated for Best Director for Butch Cassidy and The Sundance Kid from 1970. In total, Hill's films have garnered 13 Oscar wins out of 37 nominations. So, few things to break down here. Um, one, just Hill's direction in general. How do you feel about it in comparison to other Best Picture winners, other Best Director wins? Is this is it because this movie is so, like from a foundational standpoint, pretty strong? It doesn't go to like great heights. It's not an artistic masterpiece but does some really cool interesting style stylistic stylistical choices that really enhance the film and and even in like hill's speech like he credits so many people he's like well if you had a you know the two actors i had if you had robert surtees as my as your cinematographer if you had to eat the head as your costume designer you'd easily be standing up here well i don't think so he's what wrong. do you think of that he had a lot of help from amazing performers yeah. and amazing crew you know and such a solid interesting and complex script of a script that kind of challenges the audience in a way that we're not really used to and I think that's why the film goes so far in the Oscars this year because it's so different and unique but that's not to say that George Lucas's American graffiti isn't unique that is a very distinctive tone and style and also a retrospective film in the way it kind of goes back to an earlier time period of the early 60s so like a decade flashback for that film. And I think it captures that essence so perfectly. So again, there's another very well-directed film and obviously the exorcist. I mean, one of the most iconic horror movies of all time, super unique look and feel and original, right? For the time it it kind of went on to inspire so many films. I think you, you can even see like Halloween, which went on to inspire so many films. You can see how that film only like a decade or only a couple of years later would go on and, you know, and be inspired by the exorcist. So 
I think George Roy Hill, though, does a great job of taking us back, but also providing us something new, something that's interesting, something that's so entertaining and just delicious. You know, this movie is just a fun, delicious time. You just you're there. It's like you're eating a freaking hamburger with your boys and you're having a good time. And he does it perfectly. He does it in a way that I think is elevated to be worthy of this best best director status. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. I mean, to to get into like the rest of this category of like who could have won, he brought up George Lucas, he brought up Friedkin, Igmar Bergman for Cries and Whispers is there, Bernardo Berlici for Last Single in Paris is also there. I mean, I keep on bringing up Paper Moon, but Peter Bogdanovich probably could have been there. I don't know what you take out, but like, I you know the fact that that Lucas is there, it's it's so fascinating because American Graffiti is a really good movie and it is up to those style choices. It is like all these like really cool and interesting camera choices. It, it feels like it's part of this new, like he's like so young. He's like almost, you know, he had a couple years experience, but he's like still so fresh out of like film school. And he's part of this, like, again, this new wave of directing that you're like, man, it would have been really interesting to see if they did honor this experimental filmmaker who doesn't really, you know, he never wins an Oscar. Um, but this movie was so beloved at the time. If that, if there was a possibility of that sneaking in there, but we don't know, but Hill's direction pretty much, it's kind of hard to like really ding it for anything. It's pretty, pretty good. And finally, our best picture nominees are a touch of class, the exorcist cries and whispers, American graffiti and our winner of the 46 Academy Awards is The Sting by Tony Bill, Julia Phillips, and Michael Phillips. And Julia Phillips is actually the first female producer to win Best Picture. So an awesome nod for there. We're moving forward. We're progressing. It took a long time. (laughs) It took a very long time. (laughs) 46 years it took for a woman to win. But uh, this is Universal's first studio film since All Quiet on the Western Front, all the way back in 1930. The other Universal films to win Best Picture are Hamlet for distribution only, The Deer Hunter, Schindler's List, Shakespeare in Love, Gladiator, A Beautiful Mind, and Green Book, which is, again, just distribution. The Sting became the fourth highest-grossing film in history at the time behind this year's The Exorcist, released, in fact, the same week. And the and the sting took in 156 million. Adjusted today, it would be 723 million dollars. Elizabeth Taylor presented the Best Picture Oscar, and producer Julia Phillips said on stage, "You can imagine what a trip this is for a Jewish girl from Great Neck. I get to win an Academy Award and meet Elizabeth Taylor at the same time." Yeah, so I I, I just want to jump in real quick because Great Neck is where my mom grew up. It's where my grandma still lives, so like very much, like I know the Great Neck area. And then hearing her like win and seeing her personality, I'm like, oh yeah, you're totally a <laughs> Long Island girl from Great Neck. Like, I can you're tell. proud that she's <laughs> the first uh, woman to win. Yeah, and coming from you know being part of that area, and just to give like shout out more to women who have won Best Picture, uh, 15 total over 11 films. So Julia Phillips was the first. We have Lily Finney Zanuck for Driving Miss Daisy, Wendy Feynman for Forrest Gump, uh, 
Donna Kiglotti for Shakespeare in Love. You have Fran Walsh from Lord of the Rings. Uh, some other highlights. You have Catherine Bigelow uh, from uh, for The Hurt Locker. Uh, who else? We have Frances McDormand, Chloe Zhao for Nomadland. So there's been a lot of like recent, especially recent memory, um, female producers who have won Best Picture. But Julia Phillips being the first one is a huge moment. And her and Michael Phillips and Tony Bill are all like fairly young too. So it's like, wow, like, like this is a, again, like young filmmakers putting their mark in the industry for that time is a huge deal. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. It's astonishing. This was a great idea to put this list together and I'm glad we get to honor them. And God, it took uh 45 years too long to get to this point, but we're glad we're progressing <laughs> yeah. and moving forward. But I think it's time to have that conversation. Yeah, slowly. slowly. But Ben, I think before we give our stats, before we say it's worthy, we gotta we gotta talk about some numbers here. Yeah. So Ron Tomatoes score for the Sting is currently at a ninety four percent of an average Ron Tomato rating of an eight point two nine. Um the top critic percentage is a ninety of an average rating of seven point three, but that's out of ten reviews, so Again, keep in mind that number. Uh, audience scores a 95% fresh rating with a 4.4 out of 5 rating. IMDb gives it an 8.3, which is a high score, but then Metacritic gives it an 83. I won a total of 7 Oscars out of 10 nominations. John, what did you give The Sting? This film got better with time. I don't know if a third viewing would hurt or help, honestly. It's such an interesting movie that I think a third viewing, in a way, might make me like it less. But that doesn't mean I didn't love this thing, and I gave it an 86. I had a wonderful time. It is such a fun ride. It is not too deep on the surface level when it comes to characters, emotions, character arcs. But it is very deep when it comes to its complex writing, how much it shows the audience. The whole thing is truly a con on you, the person watching, and I love that. Ben, what did you give The Sting? I gave The Sting an 88. So I did have it a little bit higher after I first watched it. I thought it was a steady movie. But I think just after several watches and so many other movies that we've watched, I just was like, I don't know. This movie isn't top tier quality but it's not like anything wrong but it's not mid it's still good but it's not good enough so it was like a hard way to judge it and to give it a final number so i just settled on 88 as just like this is a b plus movie this movie is solid there's nothing truly wrong with it but there's nothing that it does that is so great and grand and maybe i need to use this as like a benchmark kind of movie or a movie to reflect with yeah, you know, a movie. This is a movie that I have to use to compare with others, I think. But also, it's hard to compare this movie to other movies because it's so specific. So, I felt solid landing on an eighty-eight. So, John, our average rating out of forty-six movies, you're at a seventy-four point eight, and I'm at a seventy-seven point three. So we're still low, but we've had some bangers. I mean, four out of the last five, I think we're pretty good with Midnight Cowboy, French Connection, Godfather, and Sting. Patton was in there, which we both were like, this is good, but not good. (laughs) So we had even like a bigger reaction. It's a, (laughs) yeah, kind of thing. But I think that's kind of like an interesting way to like look at these movies because it can be so up and down because it like is the faults of like what we don't like about the era of filmmaking, but then also has the heights of like 
everything we do love about filmmaking. So with that being said, you know, this movie is a seventies movie. We talked a lot about it. Is the sting worthy of the best picture award of 1973? Yes, I think so. And I mean, I'm rating it lower than you. And for some more reference, I have a French connection at 84, but in comparison to the Godfather, I have a 98 or midnight cowboy 95, because I think those films do such a great job at delivering you a story as a viewer and, you know, those films also have twists and turns that you may not expect. But at the end of it, it is a journey that I've taken that I feel I have been altered and changed by in a way. And I think The Sting has that, but it really lacks an emotional core. And it lacks characters that I can look at and be like, that's cool, that's suave, that's really fun. But I don't really relate to them in any way. I don't really connect that deeply with these characters because the film isn't really trying to achieve that. It's trying to do something. I think it's a lot more grand. It's retrospective. It's looking back. So in that case, I do think it's worthy because it is new. It's really interesting. It's fresh. It it's almost feels like it's taking what we know in film and mixing genres together. It's taking comedy and, and that screwball comedy aspect of it, but it's mixing it with drama and then mixing it with this kind of twisty storyteller telling like a mystery film. So I think it, it is new. It's fresh. So I think it truly deserves to stand out and I think it competes against serious competition, but still is worthy for me at the end of the day. Ben is the sting worthy. Yeah, I think it it is worthy of its award. I think, all the points you mentioned, the style of it, it, it does so much that is like fresh and new. It's a good, you know, it's a good time movie to watch. Like you're going to be engaged throughout. I think everybody can have access to this movie and feel like they can understand it and be a part of it easily. Um, so I'm a fan of the movie. I really am. Um, I think one of the things that stands out when we talk about like worthy of the award is that Yes, it's worthy, but there are also other movies that are just as worthy, and it's like hard to make. Like this is a really good year. Oh, there was yeah. a lot of like good things that happened, a lot of great movies that came out, and you know one, you know ones that I'll put up there are Paper Moon. I would put Paper Moon into like it should be a part of this competition. Um, Exorcist is pre- it's pretty damn good, but it's hard to you know look at that as like a best picture winner. But it just so many technical things that are advanced. And then the other movie that really comes to mind is American Graffiti. Um, it, it I was said to you like I don't think we give George Lucas enough credit for being the original slacker director. Like he he almost created this whole like sub genre of films in the slacker that so many like I think I texted you like Kevin Smith and Linklater are probably yeah. like Lucas fanatics. With not just Star Wars, but probably looking at American Definitely. Graffiti as like a big influence, especially Linklater. I would think with some of his movies that he's done. Um, using American Graffiti as a template a style, you know, something to do. So um, I'm a huge fan of, uh, of those movies. So am I upset that they didn't win um, over The Sting? No, but I think that this, I think The Sting is worthy, but I think this is just a really strong year, which is surprising. I don't think I was going to come out of 73 and be like, that was one of the strongest years we've had in a long time. But it really is like one of the stronger years that we've had in a long time of watching these movies. Yeah. No. Um, so yeah, so I would say it's worthy. Um, yeah. And deserving of its award. Um, so are there any final thoughts, John? Is there any twists that we're going to pull out last second with, uh, our review of the sting? <laughs> no twists. No, no crazy twists. I, I've just, no, all I was going to say is that the long goodbye mean streets 
Terrence Malick's Badlands are three films that are not even nominated. And those three films I absolutely adore. I love. They're amazing. I, I'm kind of shocked that a film like Mean Streets, maybe too ahead of its time for for the general public at the time. Maybe it's too independent at the time to really kind of shine. I don't know who produced that movie, so maybe that's a complete farce. But films like Badlands and Long Goodbye, I mean, I love Long Goodbye. It's one of like the best detective, wild, wacky movies of all time. So there are so many great films from 1973. Really watch any of them that have been nominated, any of the three that we just mentioned. There's even more. I mean, like Sleeper, Woody Allen is a classic film. The Wicker Man is another classic film. There is a lot from this year, and there was some good eating. In terms of the sting, Ben, what else is there to say? I think not much, John. I think we've hit everything. Um, I'm ready to do a con, the big con, and uh, screw up some Irishman's finance is what I'm ready for. (laughs) So that's it for the show. Thanks for listening. I'm Ben. And I'm John. And this this is Worthy. Thanks for listening to Worthy, the breakdown of every Best Picture winner from past to present. Listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out on Instagram at Worthy Podcast, on Twitter at Worthy Pod, and on Facebook at Worthy Podcast. Any inquiries can be submitted to worthysubmissions at gmail.com. That's worthysubmissions at gmail.com.